and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. And I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How you doing? I'm ready to get into it. Uh, as am I. All right, here we go. L- last week we did just the... <laughs> exactly, yeah. The pre-topic. Pre, uh, Pre- preamble is what you're going to say? Yeah, the preamble to okay. the Constitution of Battleship Pretension. So today, because it's, it's that time. Let's get into it, shall we? All right. It's the week before... The Oscars. This will go up one week before the Oscars. This is this is traditionally our time to do our best of because we, uh, you know, we have day jobs. We I call it my favorite because I haven't. There's so many movies I haven't seen. I feel like I did a good job this year seeing the movies. I I saw most of the movies I wanted to see. Now there are movies, big movies that I'm told are going to win awards, like The King's Speech and Black Swan, which I'm too cool for school for apparently. Oh, no question about but, it. But um. You know, other than um, that's all right. I hate foreigners, so it all right. works out. There's almost no foreign movies on my list, actually. Um, okay. It's a bad year for foreign film. <laughs> I just made that up. That's not a real thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, other than Oscar-nominated documentary Wasteland and uh, Sundance favorite documentary Marwin Call, I saw pretty much everything I wanted to see. Those those are two of the ones that were big for me that I that I didn't get to. Here's what I have not seen. Okay, I have not seen another year. Uh, and I'm a huge fan of Mike Lee. So uh, another year, perhaps more than any other movie on the list of movies I wanted to see and haven't seen, uh, another year is one that uh, could have very much wound up in my top ten, if not number one. Uh, Based on what you... Based on what I've heard and just how much I love Mike Lee. Okay. Um, I also did not see Dogtooth, which sounds batshit crazy and amazing. I didn't see it either, but it's... Okay, it's time again. This would be our fourth time, or maybe we're just our third time doing this, right? Uh, maybe yeah, third I think. Two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Yeah. Um, so I have to explain that I'm very strict about what counts, and that's part of the reason oh, that very right, few yes. foreign movies show up on my list because most of the foreign movies that we get here in two thousand ten are two thousand nine releases. Mm-hmm. And Dogtooth, I also didn't see, but it wouldn't have qualified anyway. It's a it's a 2009 okay. release. I, so I, I recently saw, um, not that it necessarily would have made the top ten, but um, I Love You, Philip Morris, because of its labored history of getting to <laughs> the screen, is a 2009 film. Okay. Uh, again, it's not top ten quality, but it is a really good movie. It uh, things I, I will say certain things that bother me. I remembered when, okay. you and I were talking beforehand, and it was we were doing the, the thing that happens when I was like, what was I going to say? I had something to say. And you rack your brain thinking of it, and then you get you get to it half an hour later, yeah. and you realize it was not important at all. Oh, okay. I was going to tell you a funny line from "I Love You, Philip Morris" because oh, okay. we were talking about uh, Rodrigo Santoro, and he's in it. Oh, okay, okay, fair enough. Oh my, um, but the uh, yeah, I am bothered by I am bothered by certain things regarding like uh, you know if you looked at various lists of uh, the best movies of twenty ten. Uh, I think occasionally you would see like the secret in their eyes. It's like, oh, you mean the best foreign film Oscar winner of two thousand nine? Yeah, I feel like uh, <laughs> I feel like that should instantly be like, oh, well, obviously it's two thousand nine film, as evidenced by the like the year two thousand nine being forever associated with it by the by this uh, award. I don't know. It's not yeah, the words mean. Yeah, I'm saying more people should go by my method, but it would mean that no Ameri- most Americans would not have right. foreign films on the list. Like I don't, but it doesn't mean I'm not seeing them. Right. I'm just strict for reasons that make 
the uh, the quiet the voices in my head. Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> so here's it's a shame it do. doesn't quiet the voice that comes out of your mouth. Uh, there are more that uh, there are more movies. I also did not see 127 hours. Okay, I did. I, I did not see the American. I did. I did not see monsters. I did. I did not see mother. I did not, but also wouldn't have qualified for me anyway. Okay. I didn't see Restrepo, and I did not see Waiting for Superman. I did. You did see Waiting for Superman? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. On uh, Tuesday. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Um, So anyway, uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get to our top ten in a minute. First, we want to go through... uh, I guess we'll start with what could be called our least favorite films of the year, but really more like biggest disappointments or things that are bad in some way that's noticeable. I mean, I think you said the bottom of your list is Legion, but that's not... Yeah, Legion and Nightmare on Elm Street. I saw Nightmare on Elm Street because I was going to be on another podcast talking about it, and I saw Legion to prepare for Doug Jones being on the show. I didn't want to see either one of them, but and both of them are completely mediocre, and I feel like railing at length about them... Who cares? Yeah, ultimately. So I'm gonna. I'll I'll start here. Okay. Just because I, I I have a few. I mean, everyone, anyone who listens regularly and heard our episode this past summer with Pat Francis knows my feelings on Inception. So I won't go into it. Yeah. I just it's the bottom of my list. It's my it's the film I most passionately dislike of 2010. Uh, but I also want to mention the batshit crazy movie. Legend of the Guardians, the Alice of Gahul, <laughs> which, like, it would it might have fallen into the Legion Nightmare on Elm Street category for me, if not for the fact that so many of the sort of podcasts I listen to, like, there'd be, like, at least one person on the team being like, oh, I saw it, it's not bad, you should check it out, it's okay. better, um, and some of these are Zack Snyder fans to begin with, and uh, like I, I, I've said before, I haven't completely written off Zack Snyder. He, I don't think he's made a good movie since Dawn of the Dead, but I think he's still got one in him, maybe. And maybe Sucker Punch will be that movie. Maybe. <laughs> um, but Legend of the Guardians: The Azagul is terrible. Okay. And and, and just nuts. It's insane. <laughs> they, I'm glad they made fun of it on Thirty Rock this past week. Did you oh yeah, that? it was delightful. I love yeah. that. Um, <laughs> but a, a couple more disappointments from directors I really like um, and this is another one that a lot of people disagree with me on but I really didn't like Roman Polanski's The Ghost Rider a lot of people love that one yeah uh, yeah I, I, I felt like it was it was mediocre and it, it felt I mean I'm, and I'm sure part of this has to do with the fact that he edited edited it while he was under house arrest and but it just felt uh, half-assed haphazard hmm. um, and the the genre thriller elements felt uninspired and wrote to let me. me. Let me ask you this. Do you think that a lot of people, whether conscious or not, uh, consciously or not, uh, do you think that people really loved the movie and just talked about how amazing it was, even if, even though it was, based on your opinion, of course, I haven't, I haven't seen the movie, but uh, do you think maybe they're cutting him a lot of slack because it's Roman Polanski and they're like I like Roman Polanski and oh a new film from him and yeah, he made it under not the best circumstances certainly in the post-production and so they were willing to cut him more slack than if it were another director that was uh, respected but didn't quite have the circumstances that uh, Polanski did maybe but I, I do think it has the it has the tone and atmosphere that we've come to associate with okay. Roman Polanski but it almost felt like so- it almost felt like someone else inhabiting that tone. Like someone else, a lesser filmmaker, taking a stab at a Roman Polanski movie. 
Okay. That, um, uh, that idea is going to come up later, by the way. Okay. Um, um, and I also want to mention just one more uh, okay. disappointment. Uh, I, I've really loved most, uh, pretty much all the output of uh, of Paul Greengrass, but Green Zone is what none of his movies have ever been before. It's a dumb movie, and it's it's dumb in uh, a way that makes <laughs> it makes liberals look dumb because it's a, it's an oversimplification of. Uh, the the sort of the 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 the, the liberal uh, the liberal anti Iraq War view yeah. um, that it's it's way too convenient the way that you can that in the movie you're able to point at these are the people who lied and these are their motivations for lying and it was the whole war was based on uh, us being deceived um, and it's actually yes we, we were deceived I think and we were lied to I think. But it's much a much more complex uh, situation than that, and um, uh, Greengrass does us a disservice by painting it with such broad, dumb strokes. I remember when I first saw the uh, the the trailer for it, and then read reviews of it. I remember thinking, like, this doesn't fit with his mo. I mean, if you see, you know, you see Bloody Sunday, you see United ninety three, and even the Bourne movies. It's it's a he frequently has the opportunity to go inherently political and and have a very specific point of view. And I'm not saying he doesn't have a point of view. It's that he feels like the facts can either speak for themselves or that just it, it would seem somehow exploitative, even of a fictional character like Jason Bourne, uh, well, exploitative to imp, you know impress his own opinions but the onto thing, it. Here's the thing with the Bourne movies. Because they're part of the spy genre... And there's a conspiracy element to them. Um, the conspiracy element is an oversimplification of the way things really work. I mean, it'd be things would be easier if everything that was wrong with the nation was actually attributable to a handful of shady government operatives. But even in but the, the way the, those, the, but the way that he does is he treats those elements in the Bourne movies as plot and makes he made two great movies or a continuation of a great movie about a character. And the problem with Green Zone is that it doesn't deliver on either front. Okay. It's 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 not the realism of Bloody Sunday or United ninety three and it doesn't have the uh compelling emotional journey that Boy the Bond the Bourne Born films. See and I think what's interesting about uh the Bourne movie villains, which of course they're all government uh officials and such, and so one could say that they are it's their inclusion and their motivations and stuff are a, you know, are meant to be criticism of that sort of thing. Uh, but what I like is that they are all those characters, and I'd say they can be boiled down to Chris Cooper, Brian Cox, Joan Allen, David Strathairn, uh, mm-hmm. Albert Finney. Um, right, right. Like those are the big, those are the big five, and they're all very three dimensional. And what's more is also kind of not necessarily sympathetic, but you can understand where they're coming from. Chris Cooper, he's a true believer. Like Brian mm. Cox, he's more of a you know profiteer, right? Whereas like Joan Allen is at, turns out to be somewhat of a positive character. Eventually, mm-hmm. uh, I would compare her to like Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive, who just she's got a job to do, but she also is a little skeptical. And then David Strathairn, he's not this shady guy, but he has a job to do, and he is very much a career politician, but he doesn't have an ulterior motive. He's, he's uh, and I don't want to sound like I'm uh 
downgrading Gregory Itson's performance on 24. Mm. But David Strathairn is a more believable version of the same thing, where he is weak-willed and s- sort of sniveling and opportunistic in the Bourne movies, but... Heart-healthy eggs. I remember that's one, <laughs> yeah. of, my, one of the big things I remember. Um, but he doesn't exude that, you know? It, right. it's, it's sort of like, you know, people say, I guess, people of your ilk say that it would be... <laughs> Thank you for that. But I, mean, people, I guess people who believe what you believe say um, it'd be easy to best the devil if he always looked like the devil. Oh, yeah. And the thing about David Strathairn is that he is just as pathetic, I think, a, a person as Gregory Itson's character was on 24, but you wouldn't know that if you just met him. Because right. he prevents him, presents himself very confidently. Right. Anyway. Uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, what, what are what are your uh, I, I just have bottom one, of the list? I just have one because there are so, it's not even that I had high hopes for it, but it's one of those things, it's a film that, you know, like the ones you brought up, it's well. I mean, you said you know, Legends of the, of the uh, Owls or whatever the hell. Um, <laughs> you said that that was terrible, but like the movie Robin Hood. Now, I was not expecting it to be great. Mm-hmm. I expected it to be about the level of Kingdom of Heaven, also Ridley Scott. Uh, just a serviceable little epic uh, with probably some fun performances. Uh, I always, I, I'd say, I always like uh, Russell Crowe and uh, Kate Blanchett, and uh, Mark Strong is really emerging as. Uh, solid villainous actor. Uh, you've not seen Kick Ass, as we all know, but he's really uh, he's isn't really he in good the Sherlock that. Holmes movie as well? Yes, he is, yeah. and he's going to be one of the uh, uh, character who emerges as a villain in uh, the Green Lantern. Ah. And uh, I just I like him a lot as an actor, but uh, but Robin Hood wound up being boy oh boy, just. It's oh, it's the origin story of Robin Hood. I could not give less of a shit. I mean, it is, it kicks off. It's it ends right when somebody wants it to start. And I'm not saying like don't give us motivations. I don't want it to just retread familiar ground. But if you're gonna do an origin story, I don't know. It, it's hard. Like to me, to the best way to do an origin story is like Batman Begins, mm-hmm. where. When they, when Commissioner Gordon shows up, or when he stumbles upon the Batcave, or something like that, it doesn't feel quite so token. Like ah, right. Friar Tuck, here he is, and oh, little John, not quite so little. You know, just like uh-huh. little things where you're like, ah, oh, come on. Yes, I realize that you have uh, hoops to jump through, but if you're gonna, if you're gonna try and rethink this. Uh, rethink these ideas or rethink these characters maybe don't uh, cater quite so specifically to our general ideas of them Uh, and it wound up being just a just a muddy just it's there's no fun to it and i've always associated robin hood with being fun uh this i also happened to see the adventures of robin hood for the first time this past year and that's That's michael curtis yeah errol Errol flynn Flynn. wonderful film lots of fun lots of great adventure more I was more thrilled watching that movie from the 30s than I was watching Robin Hood 2010, and people would people would say that through camera techniques and stuff, movies are more action-packed now. Yeah, it should be more visceral now, yeah, but... Not at all. Yeah. So, very, uh, very disappointing. Okay, the next thing we want to do before we get to our uh, top 10 is a few honorable mentions. Yeah. And um, because, once again, I'll go first, because once we get to the top 10... Tyler will be going before I Indeed, I will yes. for each one. So um, that's yes, that's um, what we're doing. So well, one of my honorable mentions I'm going to leave off because I'm pretty sure it's in your top ten. Okay, so I won't do that. But I, I do want to mention um, a couple of smaller independent films. Um, one Gareth Edwards Monsters, yep. which is um, 
Uh, I mean, I feel like within our sort of, you know, film blogger, film podcaster community is has been talked about a lot, but I think uh, is is worth talking about. It's a it's a very interesting film. It's and it's not what you think it is at all. It's, it did have a strong District Nine vibe. Uh, I know a yeah, lot of people said that. I I certainly got it when I first heard about it. It's not crowd pleasing the way the District Nine is. It's actually okay. a very meditative uh, film. Oh, that's great. Um, and wonderfully photographed and edited together, it it sort of it, it sort of manages to move at a languid pace and still present and still have you feel the constant presence of danger. I'm excited to use the word languid. I love that word. Okay, uh, another film, a recent film that does qualify for my 2010 list, um, and is directed by a friend of the show. That's uh, Aaron Katz's Cold Weather. Oh boy, um, definitely an honorable mention. It's. Uh, um, I think it'll probably you know people it'll, once it's more widely seen it'll probably be mentioned uh, along the lines of maybe like uh, uh, the long goodbye in that it's a sort of um, again again it's kind of languid uh, and almost a, a deconstruction of the detective film right. genre you know where it is that but all, all the people involved are not who you would expect like there's nothing hard boiled about the characters just the story right. Um, that's worth mentioning. Um, I want to mention a couple of documentaries that were uh, inspired a lot of passion and worked very well as film essays. The aforementioned Waiting for Superman okay. and uh, the great and uh, Oscar-nominated uh, Inside Job. Okay. Um, and then one more honorable mention, and this is a movie that I think among horror fans will probably continue to be talked about, but will probably be long forgotten by most of the populace, and that's uh, The Last Exorcism. Ah uh, yes, uh, that also like monsters is not what you think it's going to be going in. The Last Exorcism is a very it, it, to me it worked. It was a very uh, had a lot of scares in it. It was a very uh, disturbing and unsettling horror movie. But it's not the kind of horror movie you're expecting going in. Um, it uh, it it's it's actually about something, you know, about the uh, it's basically about the foolishness of being 100% sure that you're right about anything. Good, uh, a good uh, good lesson all the time. Yeah, and it is also batshit crazy in a good way. Not that, the, not the keep, Legends of the Guardians We keep returning to that, and it's not going to be the last time I say it. Okay, because not, not in like the laughable Legend of the Guardians way. Okay. It's almost audacious, like, wow, I can't believe this movie went the places it went. All right. So, Last, Ex- last Exorcism. Lots of... Uh there's going to be a lot of echoes, like words on, like audacious okay. and batshit crazy. That's two words. But, uh, yeah, I only have one uh, honorable mention. Oh, way to... Way, I know, I'm really keeping it... Way to uh, be economical. I have an honorable mention for movie, and then I have one scene okay. that I wanted to mention. Okay. Uh, the honorable mention, uh, as far as movie, is The Killer Inside Me. Not, I didn't see it. Not a perfect movie at yeah. all. But, uh, man, fascinating. And uh, Casey Affleck continues uh, a- as misguided as uh, I'm Still Here uh, was supposed to be. Um, from an acting standpoint, he just keeps going uh, with uh, great performances, I'd say, you know, that we first were uh, aware of in, you know, Gone Baby Gone and Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. But, uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's for those that, that don't know, it's the story of this, 
of this uh, clean-cut deputy in uh, the 19, I believe, 40s or 50s. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it. And, shoot, maybe uh, I'm almost positive it's 50s. Because it's that time. It's, that, it's kind of from a pulp, uh, a pulp right, novel. Right. And it turns out that this uh, clean-cut guy, uh, not only does he have some interesting uh, kind of S&M sexual proclivities, but uh, he is, David, batshit crazy. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> and he is brutal. I mean, he is a. Br- it's very much. Uh, I was thinking of doing of doing an episode about more than one uh, of more than one lesson about it, and the film I'd be pairing it with was American Psycho, uh. Uh, because they're very similar. Of just this exterior hiding. But is the killer inside me funny the way the American Psycho? Is? There are times that that it's very funny. But here's the thing: it is never funny about its violence. Um, and that it's its attitude towards violence. Some people could watch it and think that it revels in its violence. I disagree because it is heartbreaking. He almost always kills women. Um, and it is. It's heartbreaking to see what he does to these women. It's heartbreaking to know that he has an emotional connection with them and feels that this is a thing he has to do. And so, of course, the betrayal that they feel beforehand and then you just, the way it holds on their faces as it's happening and it does not, it doesn't pull its punches. And I'm not, I say that uh, not necessarily tongue-in-cheek, but I mean, there are scenes where he literally beats somebody to death mm-hmm. and it is, I mean, it's truly gut-wrenching. I, it's It's the way violence... It's the way I think violence should be portrayed, which is uncomfortable, unsettling, truly horrific, and unblinking. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. the same. Re- it's one of the same things that I loved about a history of violence all these uh, all these years ago. But like, it's just, uh, and I felt like the it was interesting that they chose to do the violence that way in their depicting of a of a of a novel that's you know. 50, 60 years old now. And I think it's interesting because I I feel like when we think of certain genres of film or certain genres of book or whatever, I'm, I'd say anything by Mickey Spillane, for example, uh, where violence is this thing that's fun, but it doesn't mean anything because we never see it. You know, we watch those old detective movies and they, now, of course, they couldn't show a lot of violence, but, like, if somebody gets punched or someone gets shot, you never see, like, the blood right. on their clothes. And if someone gets punched, you don't often see, like, a bruise afterwards, much less anyone spitting out blood. Uh, and this says, like, yeah, these things that that we view as entertainment, there are real physical consequences to what is happening, even if the characters are fake and even if it is a strong genre uh, exploration and uh, Killer Inside Me it goes off the rails at the end but um, it is a movie that is worth it's worth seeing it's really fascinating so I'm sorry I've, see that's the thing I picked one movie because I knew I was going to talk a lot about it <laughs> the scene that I wanted to bring up is really just a sequence in the in Harry Potter oh okay. um, I think I know which one you're I'm sure you probably do because I think almost anybody does to my knowledge, it is one of the only instances of bringing in an, a song that was not, or a piece of music that was not uh, created for the film. And yeah. it, they use uh, a Nick Cave song, and mm-hmm. it's right when, and it comes at right at just the right time in uh, in the film where Ron's character has uh, not Ron's character, Ron <laughs> uh, has left, and it's just Harry and Hermione, and they things feel. Are- 
Things are dire at this point. Things are very dire, but at the same time, they're dire, but they're not urgent. Which is to say, right. they're not. It's in... almost like there's almost like a suffocating, right. like uh, I almost want to say boredom. Like they, yeah. The, there's just no end in sight. Exactly. And, like they don't know what direction they're supposed to go. They know uh, they have a general idea of what they're supposed to do. They know that if they take any wrong step, they're going to die. But in the meantime, they are at this moment safe. But they're only safe because they're not going anywhere uh-huh. at this exact moment. And so they choose to fill that silence with the the song comes on the radio and Harry like pulls Hermione up and they start dancing. And it's not somebody could look at that and say that it's romantic. And it's not. It's not a romantic thing. It's just this connection between two people, and this is the only thing they have right now. Yeah. And it's so beautiful. I'm getting choked up now. Yeah, it is best. such a beautiful it's sequence. It's really wonderful. And it should be noted, I've not read any, I've not read any of the books, but if you're going to adapt, uh, we've said this before, if you're going to adapt a book into a movie, you need to think of things like this. Mm-hmm. You need to in- incorporate thing, something that's, that's visual, but also it adds to to something. It adds something to the characters in the way that a book can't. Just as books, uh, yeah. This add is a sequence to, that's not in the book because right. it couldn't be. It couldn't be. This is, uh, yeah. That 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 sequence is um, uh, almost a, a testament to the standalone, singular nature of film as art. Absolutely. And and what yeah, what you can do with it because it doesn't have anything to do with the plot. It's a you know, extractable, lyrical, poetic moment. Yeah, it's really wonderful. Honorable mention, that's my scene. David, top ten, here we go. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Tyler okay. and I have not looked at each other's lists. That's right. So um, if Tyler or I mention a movie that is further down the list on the on the other person's, then we will hold off until we get to the higher ranking to talk about it. Right. So I don't think there's a whole lot of overlap i know here um so let's let's again let's get into it shall we indeed tyler what was your number 10 favorite movie of 2010 number 10 is the movie that many will that that uh, is probably next week going to be called the best movie of the year the king's speech um it is a movie that uh, i said it uh, when we were talking with uh, graham and chris it's a film that Admittedly, I, I always knew what was going to happen, and not merely because it's a function of history. The joy of the film is watching how it happens. Um, that, you know, I mean, it, it could kind of have, it has, the story itself has sort of a masterpiece theater kind of quality. It could have been on HBO, like uh, The Gathering Storm and, and all those uh, Winston Churchill things. Mm-hmm. It, it very well could have been that, but it wasn't. And Tom Hooper, the director, uh, who previously directed? Did he direct all the episodes of John Adams, or most of them? I don't know. Yeah, I think I think he did most of them. Okay, and so, um, and he he has shown himself to be a director who everything about the King's Speech could have just been very stagey, and just the camera is just a not an active participant, and, and the editing was purely functional. It's not. It really puts you inside what it must be like. To talk in front of people when you can't, when you literally can't, like the the there are moments of extreme tension, and you keep wanting it to let you off, and it's not hmm. because it's not for the character. And as I've said before about uh, Colin Firth, I mean the the film is it's built around him as it rightfully should be, 
Um, and both in the way he's written, the way he's directed, and certainly the way he's acted, uh, he's not an easy character to listen to. He stutters, and even when he does speak clearly, he kind of has an, an odd way of expressing himself, and his voice is a little strange and not altogether pleasant to, to, to hear. And, uh, and every sentence is a struggle, and you feel that struggle. And at the end, when he gives the big speech... You expect it. You expect it because of lesser films. You expect it to be this big triumphant moment where he speaks beautifully. No, not at all. Every single sentence of every single sentence or paragraph of that speech is coached out of him while he's giving it by Jeffrey Rush, who also does an amazing job of playing an eccentric character without overplaying him. Hmm. And it's just, uh, it's not. A, it, I would say it's. It's a very, very good film. I'm not sure if I'd say it's a perfect film simply because of just the inherent predictability of it. But I wonder if that's just a function of you can't help it with that premise. Uh, but it's a really great film, and I, I really uh, I really enjoyed it a, a, a lot. So okay. that's my number 10. My number 10 is a movie that I shouldn't spend too long on because we talked about it uh, at length with Graham two weeks ago, and that's the, doc- the documentary Restrepo. Okay. Um, and here's a, a word that came up basically has maybe defined 2010 on Battleship Pretension for me because uh, it came up a lot last year in our top 10 when uh-huh. we were talking about public, public enemies. And it also came up a few months ago when we did our episode on uh, film as an abstract art versus film as a dramatic art. Right. And so the word I'm talking about is formalism. Because uh, Restrepo, it has a chronological structure in that it's following the one-year deployment. It's there for a year. Right. Um, but it doesn't have uh, any sort of narrative like even movies that I mentioned earlier like Inside Job and Waiting for Superman have like points that they're hitting in a certain order. Also the uh, what I should have mentioned and I don't mention uh, another great movie uh, that's also about the war in the Middle East is The Tillman Story. Mm. Um, this isn't like any of those. It's just let's plop down for a year in the most dangerous part of Afghanistan, as far as uh, being a member of the U.S. military, the most dangerous place to be, D- dangerous for everyone involved. Again, I've not I've not seen the film, but even even the filmmakers themselves are in danger. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a great deal, a great deal of danger, and um, so the way that it uses just the structure of the military life and the uh, odd structure of this particular military life because of their because they're taking fire at least once a day. Um, it, it, the way that it uses that, it doesn't have to pull anything out of you emotionally. It never has to manipulate you emotionally. You uh, understand when they're scared. You understand when they're brave. You understand when they're mean. You understand when they're funny. When they're relaxed, you feel it along with them because of the 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 structure and aesthetic of the film um you just sink into it you are there right i mean quite literally but uh, yeah but again it's not even yeah it, I, I mean, it can be compared to like a bloody sunday like a paul greengrass you are there thing but um in in bloody sunday you saw people get shot in restrepo the camera doesn't know when someone's going to get shot so it's Usually looking at the wrong thing, like I shouldn't say the right, like done like the right thing is a guy right. getting shot, but it's usually looking elsewhere because the danger is coming from all over the place. Yeah, um, it's almost 
there's a sense of almost hopelessness in the movie, but then, you know, it's, it's a sort of, we can't go on. We must go on. Mm-hmm. But not patriotism either. It's just about the way that a person reacts. Yeah. Uh, an American person in this world, uh, in this, uh, in this valley. Interesting. That's what Restrepo is about. It sounds really interesting, and uh, and what I like about it, and, and I, I don't know, I find myself, we, I want to do an episode about documentaries uh, at some point. We already have a little bit, but I want to talk about recent documentaries because uh-huh. there's just been such a, I venture to say, renaissance when it comes to documentaries in the last 10 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, uh, I think I respond way more to movies, to documentaries specifically like that, where I feel like the documentarian feels as though they have no choice but to for lack of a better term get their hands dirty they Mm -hmm. have to be a part of it they can't just sit back and comment they have to be a part of it it's an instinct that much as i don't like him even michael moore understands but the the, the difference is these filmmakers aren't themselves a part of it you don't really i think maybe you might hear them ask a question once in a while but there's no uh narration um i mean there's interviews after the fact with some of the soldiers but it's really more the camera is a part of it more than the filmmakers are. Okay, yeah. So I guess where the audience has no choice but right. to be involved, but, but to engage. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the one of my favorite documentaries, and by extension, one of the most uh, not by extension, but of what we're talking about, one of the most uncomfortable is the movie Salesman, where the camera you're right there in every awkward. It's like living in Glengarry Glen Ross, <laughs> and it's a real thing. Um, but yeah, I, Restrepo. I think because of that that aspect it might be why i was kind of dragging my feet and watching it because i feel like i need to get ready for that one uh emotionally yeah okay number nine for you animal kingdom that was my honorable mention that i didn't mention yeah because i figured it would be in your top 10 okay uh i didn't expect it to be in my top 10 uh, especially what i had heard about it uh something of a passive not necessarily a passive hero but not necessarily a dynamic one Uh um who is surrounded by much more colorful uh, personalities, and yeah, he's kind of like uh, Billy Bob Thornton in The Man Who Wasn't There. That's a good. I'd in, say in, that's in, a in very a good comparison um, because there's a difference between a weak, inactive lead and a passive lead. Like passive lead is something he's choosing to be yeah. get, as as almost a as a coping mechanism, as a way to stay alive. Just don't involve yourself. If you don't involve yourself, you can't get in trouble. It's fine. And involving yourself could mean both in what you do and how you feel, mm-hmm. because when your mother is a is a junkie and you're you come from a family of criminals, you're only going to let yourself get so involved emotionally because right. at any moment any one of them could die and often do. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, it does such a great job of creating the instability and just the feeling of constant tension of what it must be like to live amongst these people. Yeah. Um, you're not sure of anything, especially because the guy who's sort of in charge of everything, the character's name is Pope, uh, is so batshit crazy, David. <laughs> uh, that, uh, but he's almost uh, that, that's. But he's not crazy. funny because he's not. He's maybe. not crazy. No, absolutely not. I was joking, but uh, what were you going to say? I'm sorry. Because uh, I guess batshit crazy makes it sound like he's reckless, and I don't think that's what he is. Mm-mm. Um, I think he's certainly a sociopath and he's 
not as smart as he thinks he is or as smart as the people who work under him, his brothers think he is. And his his sense of confidence, his ill-gotten sense of confidence paired with his lack of empathy mm-hmm. are what make him so dangerous. And it reminds me, that that character reminds me of something that you said a long time ago when we were talking about uh, great villains. I don't think the episode's available anymore, which is good because we can revisit the topic. Okay. But um, you commented that Don Cheadle in Out of Sight is one of your favorite villains mm-hmm. because he's so dangerous. And when you think, it's like, well, there's nothing that dangerous about him. He's he's dumb. Yeah. It's not that, not necessarily dumb, but just he's not very bright. He doesn't think things through. He only knows... I need to fix the perceived problem right now, and that's all that matters. It doesn't matter tomorrow. Yeah, it, you know, it only. It's ma- sort of like in like spy movies, like the bad guy will pull a gun on our guy, and our guy's unarmed, but he'll say, "Hold on, I have information you need that will keep me alive." But if you're facing a guy like Pope or Don Cheadle, right. they're not smart enough to think about that. Right, they, they're they going to shoot be- you no matter what you have. They're they're sociopaths, but they're also you're absolutely right. Him not thinking things through leads him to do things that you're like, oh my gosh, and that leads me to another point actually. Okay, the scene you're talking about that I won't you know the one I'm talking spoil about, for yeah. anyone. But you talk about the difference between a, a weak, inactive character and a passive one. Our hero is passive. The youngest of the uncles is despicable for how weak he is. Yeah, he's not. He's not as actively an evil person as his other as his brothers, the rest of the uncles. Right. He's evil because he lacks the willpower to stand up to any of them ever. Right. Even when something horrible is going on. And he, yeah, uh, he's like a lot of things about this movie, like sort of upset my stomach when I think about them. Yeah. But him, especially that final image of this, the youngest uncle, I forget all the characters' names, by the way. Right. Um, sitting out on the patio at the, at the, towards the end of the movie. I know. Is It just churns my stomach how inactive it's you, you almost want to smack him and it ma- it does make you wonder like it, there are certain i'm gonna say you do want to smack him oh no absolutely <laughs> it wouldn't be out of line <laughs> yeah yeah um <laughs> now now come on <laughs> let's not be animals here oh i did i did i forgot yeah. I, we were talking about animal kingdom um it kind of makes you wonder as much as we see movies like the godfather and shows like The Sopranos where there's a family of criminals and, oh, they're so close. Chances are a family of criminals is way closer. I'd say they're somewhere between the family in Animal Kingdom and, uh, o- wait, O'Doyle from, uh, from, <laughs> from Billy, Billy Madison. Madison. Okay, yeah, just, just yeah. a family of, of enabling, uh, I would say assholes, but maybe that's a little tame for murderers. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's just, it, it really does a good job, and it doesn't, you just, you go in expecting like, oh man, each character is going to be so interesting, and so, oh, you never know what they're going to do. And then you actually see, it's it has the the creeping feeling of reality, yeah and what this actually would be. There are things more specifically about that that I want to talk about, but the movie, in addition to all these great atmospheric and character things that we've talked about, mm. it's a, a really interestingly and um originally plotted movie and so there are certain things about one of the brothers that i can't really say anything about right um but just that there is a character who is almost like the he's the criminal you want like he's the smart guy um but it doesn't the movie never works out the way 
you want it to. Right. It it managed to have a twisty turning plot where the twists and turns take a back seat to the 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 characters in the in the atmosphere. And then of course real quick before I mean you can't talk about the movie without talking about it. the acting is great great all around. Jackie Weaver uh I'd say absolutely de- deserves that Oscar nomination for mm-hmm. supporting actress. She's really great. She's one of my favorite types of villains without ever dipping into being a typical movie character where she's just she's evil but she's got a big smile on her face and but she doesn't overplay like oh wouldn't it be awesome if i played this evil character with a smile it's not that right. she just plays it as a character who absolutely doesn't think herself evil she's practical and she wants to keep her family together and that's all that matters yeah it's uh, really just a really interesting movie i would give a supporting actor award of some kind to a different character but he's this character I'm talking about, who's the the criminal you want out of a yeah. criminal movie, the one you almost like, yeah. But they're just. I, I, anyway, let's just move on to the next movie because there's nothing I can say about this movie, okay. the, the plot of this movie, without spoiling something. Moving at a snail's pace here, David. But okay, we're gonna we're gonna make it. So number nine on my list might be further up on your list. Okay, uh, and that's Winner's Bone. Okay, we'll get to it later. Yes. Okay, what's number eight on your list? Might be further up yours. Uh. <laughs> uh <laughs> Exit through the gift shop. That's yeah. That's further up. Okay. Okay. Number eight on my list. I know isn't on yours because you haven't seen it. And this is again going to bring us back to public enemies and exercises in formalism. Okay. Uh, and this is Anton Corbijn's The American. Okay. Is my my number eight favorite movie of 2010. Yeah. Let that sink in. I don't think it made enough people's top <laughs> top ten lists. I think it made Ebert's. Really? Yeah. Good. If if not uh, honorable mention, I'm sure. Um. Because this is. <laughs> Unlike Animal Kingdom, which, which even if you're not a guy who's into, or a girl, who's into, uh, who cares about character development or, you know, themes or insight, you can watch Amer- uh, Animal Kingdom and enjoy it because it's, like I said, a great plot. Right. Uh, the American will bore you to tears if you are only in it for the plot because almost nothing happens in it. It's, there, there's, there's, 15, 20 minutes of plot in the movie. It's... Uh, so you're saying the film is 15 to 20 minutes long? No. It's uh, it's about an hour and 40. Oh, it's about wow. 100 minutes long. I don't see how that's possible, David. <laughs> because what it is, is it's almost like a process movie. Like, this is how you live day-to-day and minute-to-minute if you're leading this kind of life. If you're a killer for hire, especially like an international killer for hire um you know not just not like a mob hitman but someone who kills heads of state and stuff like that um you kind of only you kind of have to live day by day and minute by minute and you have to be very careful in everything you do because you're going to make enemies along the way and these aren't the enemies who are going to they're not going to you know key your car they're going to kill you (laughs) you know (laughs) like philip seymour hoffman's enemies in uh charlie wilson's war right people are trying to kill him people who know how so this sort of meticulous way that he that that george clooney the american who's uh i think i can't remember what names he goes by edward i think and then he goes by jack uh, he goes by two different names i don't know which one if either one is actually his real name um but the way that he goes through his life is the result of years of having lived like this and what's what makes the movie fascinating is not only uh, sort of settling into that 
that groove and that um, slow and deliberate cadence. Because uh, this is a slow movie that's not languid in any way. It has forward momentum. It just moves one piece at a time. But the interesting that what 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 adds to that is that, uh, of course, Jack slash Edward is a human being. He's not a robot, so he does, to a certain extent, want to enjoy life and want to make a connection with a person. And so he starts up a friendship slash slash relationship with um, a local prostitute that is not wildly passionate it's not any of the things you would expect from a movie it's it barely registers they just spend time together but because of the world we've been settled into it's it's huge Hmm. um but yeah and it's also uh a thriller that will again bore you if you're just looking to watch a thriller everything that i had heard about it it reminded me of a, a movie called uh, Le Cercle Rouge. Which I've never seen. I've seen uh, some other... Uh, uh, what's his name? Melville? Melville, yes. Yes. I've seen uh, I've seen Le Samurai. Okay. Which it de- yeah, this definitely, definitely made me think of Le Samurai. I apologize to any uh, French listeners we have for my pronunciation of that. Uh, I tried to overplay uh, my French accent so that I could, conce- I could conceivably... Do it right. Uh, so, but uh, but, but yeah, yeah it, just it's, very... it's right. I, like I said, I haven't seen La Cercle Rouge, but um, it is very Melvillean. Okay, all right, which is great. And I love, I love the, I love uh, that film, La Cercle Rouge. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, the American actually kind of excited me. I just, uh, you know, like so many other things, just didn't get around to see it. Did you see? I, you I don't take films seriously. I didn't right? see Control. No, you no, didn't. No, you would like Control, but um, I thought you didn't like it. No, I love Control. You love it. Damn it. Um, what am I thinking of? Oh well, but Control is also a very tightly composed film. But it it, it feels like it feels like punk rock compared to the American, <laughs> which is so meticulous hmm. that it's uh, it's fascinating. But it, it I say it'll bore you if you're looking for a thriller. But I was never actually bored by the movie. The hundred minutes did not feel like a hundred minutes to me. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll seek it out. Awesome. All right, number seven on your list. Scott Pilgrim versus the world. We'll talk about it later. Okay. Number seven on my list. Another formalist exercise that is a lot more punk rock. Um, but not uh, like I, I love to give these long lead ups before I actually say what the movie yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Probably annoys people, but I don't care because I enjoy doing it. Obviously. I imagine some people when they think of punk rock, they think of the sort of attitude and clothes and mosh moshing, you know, and sort of flailing about violently in all directions you could not sound more like a dad right now if edward herman were saying this uh, (laughs) he would have sounded cooler than i did um but when i think of punk rock i think of um a sort of uh a no no frills approach of a driving forward momentum uh no bells and whistles raw a, a raw and deliberate deliberate delivery and so um, I'm talking about Olivier Assayas' five and a half hour Carlos, which five and a half hours is long for a punk rock song. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, there's there's always been something. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? What's a synonym for punk rock? Because I've said punk way too many times. But there's always been something about Olivier Olivier Assayas that has been. 
um, sort of without pretension, but in a hip way. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, we said we both said it earlier. I mean, there is a rawness to his to his films. I remember uh, he directed a film that I really love called Clean. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, that yeah is just he's just willing to put everything out there, and yeah, I guess you may call it pretentious, but it just it's what feels right. I mean, some could call it self indulgent, but I don't think so. I don't think so. there's there's a great uh, there's a great economy. <laughs> this is, feels like a funny thing to say about a five and a half hour movie, but it takes place over you know four decades or whatever. But there's a there's an economy to a lot of the storytelling. Like uh, a lot of the times, you know, Carlos will go into an apartment to get a briefcase, then come down the stairs, put the briefcase in his car, and drive off. But that will all happen in in just a few seconds. You just see him up the stairs, cut, getting the briefcase, cut, putting it in the trunk, car, cut, car driving off. Um, and then there will be other thing, other shots that go on for minutes on end, but there, it's the movie is always moving forward. Um, and again, this is reflective of the life that a person who is wanted by the law and by governments has to has to lead. Um, you know, these revolutionaries were deliberate in their in their means and in their uh causes but also in the way they had to live their live their life um which is not to say when i say deliberate in their causes it doesn't mean that i a it doesn't mean that i uh, agree with the, with the causes or their methods mm-hmm. of you know hostage taking and, and and murder and uh terrorism um but also yes because liking a film that contains things uh, that are morally questionable doesn't mean that you like those things. Yes. Just throwing that out there. Okay. Is this something? It's based on an iTunes comment for more than one lesson. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. But the other thing is that um, what becomes fascinating about the film, at the, you know, as it's five and a half hours goes on, is that Carlos continues this way of life, and to all, for all aesthetic purposes, to an outside observer he's still living like a revolutionary but it becomes clear just in inches at a time that that carlos himself is more interested in the notoriety and in himself than in the causes he has aligned himself with hmm. because he he becomes notorious early on um and i don't think he ever I don't think he. I don't, I, obviously, I didn't know the Carlo, Carlos the Jackal in real life, <laughs> but uh, the character never would have admitted to himself that he's lost the revolution. In fact, one time he complains of his of his second or third wife. You know, I thought I married a revolutionary, and that she's bourgeois or something. But he's the one who's bought this nice house, yeah. and, uh, and 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 his. His desire to live without being too tied down to anything isn't a part of his political ideology. It's a it's a result of the fact that he's the most important thing in his life. Uh and so it it does take five and a half hours to not only trace the history of this of these revolutionaries, but to tease out who Carlos really is. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, I, I apologize, everybody, for uh, commenting on so many movies that I've not seen. Uh, 
but because I'm going to, I'm about to compare Carlos with another film that I have not seen. Um, <laughs> but uh, I guess more in just the facts of them as opposed to uh, anything specifically about them. Um, it's odd that Carlos comes out so so soon after Che. Uh-huh. Um, because and based on what which was lean at a mere, at a mere four hours, <laughs> uh, but it's interesting because the uh, <laughs> yeah Carla Che <laughs> is four hours long, and you could like watch Che and then watch Fargo in the time it takes to watch Carlos. <laughs> you could watch Motorcycle Diaries <laughs> right. and then watch Che, <laughs> and that will equal one Carlos. But uh, <laughs> so <laughs> the. But it's interesting the way you describe uh, the way they approach Carlos, which is to reveal character over time as opposed to merely document. Mm -hmm. And everything that I've heard about Che, again, this is only what I've heard. I've not seen the film. I don't want to make it sound as as if this is based on what I I personally think. But based on, you know, uh, I believe friend of the show, Jason Eakin, saw it and and put it out there, that uh, that Che is actually, it's, it's interesting because it only... It's more interested in just just depicting his life than really uh, examining it. And it sounds like Carlos, uh, there's a reason that Carlos keeps popping up on on like top ten lists, whereas Che kind of went away. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's because it's not merely how comprehensive it is in all the stuff that it shows. It's how it shows them and how it is getting to the root of who this guy was. And uh, it sounds really fascinating, and I've, you know, when I get the chance, I will, when I have five and a half hours to kill, uh-huh. I will I will watch it. And by the way, I, I, I should go back to my original thing. I use the word punk rock, um, or the term punk rock, deliberately because he uses punk and post-punk music hmm. uh, to, by bands like uh, The Dead Boys and Wire. Um, that's uh, great stuff, and I, I like that he can... I like that he can use such what's generally considered low culture music to make what's definitely considered a high a highbrow film. I think it's pretty neat. That's a pretty neat uh, dichotomy. Is that the word? Yeah. Okay. I think so. All right. What is your number six film of 2010? Joan Rivers, A Piece of Work. I didn't see it. All right. <laughs> Finally. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, and and I've talked about this at length uh, elsewhere, uh, both on the the show with uh, Graham and Chris, as well as the Paul Goebel show. Yeah, uh, man, it's an interesting movie, and I'm I'm a big fan of of movies like uh, I I remember I brought this up with uh, like Gran Torino, um, where the filmmakers know they realize that films don't exist in a vacuum that people come to the film with certain expectations about the film. Now, I mentioned Gran Torino, of course, uh, Clint Eastwood made that knowing that people are thinking, ah, Dirty Harry, here we go, (laughs) I'm ready. And then used that expectation, turned it on its head to condemn uh, everything about the Dirty Harry films. And what I like about uh, Joan Rivers' A Piece of Work is that much like myself and most people, even people that that remember Joan Rivers from you know her her comedy heyday when she you know had her own show, you know she guest host, hosted the Tonight Show, all that stuff. Not in that order. Not in that order. She guest no. hosted first. Yes, then, yes. Show. Uh, and certainly couldn't do comedy it at nerds. the same time. Yes, but uh, 
So anyway, uh, but even people who are, that remember that, like, kind of view her as something as a, something of a joke who shows up, you know, doing the e-red carpet stuff, but also like, oh, she was on uh, the Celebrity Apprentice. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, and just. And then, of course, all the plastic surgery and just all these things. But that when she was on the Celebrity Apprentice, she referred to the the woman who was a professional gambler as uh, a whore pit viper. And oh, that's nice. still one of my favorite things ever. Uh, I did not see it. <laughs> I, did, I didn't watch the show, but I think I watched that on, on YouTube. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, there was, but, you know, being on, on shows like The Celebrity Apprentice or Dancing with the Stars, there is a certain... I'm, I will say a certain has been quality to the celebrities that show up on those things and so her being on there and then of course winning uh it's like oh she won yeah you were still on the celebrity apprentice um (laughs) and so she kind of was and of course plastic surgery and all this crazy stuff about her uh she kind of was a public joke in a lot of ways like if i when i said when i would say to people hey i saw the joan rivers documentary and they're like really because first off, why would anybody want to spend an hour and a half with this woman? Um, and also, how much could there be to know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out, uh, lots. Yeah, uh, she's had a fascinating life, but also, she is. I came out with so I came out of that film with so much respect for her, not merely what she did, but what she's doing now. Mm-hmm. There's a and what's more is, you know, there's a. I don't know if you're if you're like this, but. Every time I see an older actor or actress do something in, in a in a TV show or a movie that is for a much younger audience that requires a certain degree of absurdity, maybe even, you know, crudeness or whatever, and they just go ahead and do it. Jessica Walter on Arrested Development? Sure. Or uh, Henry Winkler on Arrested Development yeah. or, you know, any any number of things. And you just think, like, that seems weird but then you realize they're just people and what's more they're creative people and so they're they were probably you know chomping at the bit to do this but couldn't in their earlier career and can i tell you a story that illustrates that sure that i am almost a little embarrassed about um friend of the show steven topolowski yep um on twitter quite a while ago was tweeting his thoughts on he was revisiting the nine inch nails album the fragile and for a second i had this thought like Steven Tobolowsky likes Nine Inch Nails? And then, of, of course, yeah, the same thing. It occurred to me, like, yeah, he's a cool guy. Right, and just and just because you're older doesn't mean that your taste... It's like, well, time to put on my uh, Mel Torme album. Yeah, just because my parents stopped listening to music after 1979 <laughs> doesn't mean everyone their age did. Oh, uh, Steely Dan. <laughs> but uh, I like Steely Dan. I don't think, I don't think either of my parents did. No, I, I, I think my mom's favorite album of all time is the Jesus Christ Superstar soundtrack, <laughs> which is not something I'm making... I, I don't like it, but I'm not making fun of that. But I, She should get together with my mom and they can listen to Jesus Christ Superstar and Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> but uh, but it, along those lines, you and I are comedy nerds, uh-huh. and we, you know, you listen... I mean, we know who Bill Hicks is, like, and we've listened to a lot of, uh, I would say, comedy theory. Uh, especially these days with podcasts out there, people talking about what comedy is supposed to be. I know the mm-hmm. friend of the show, Jimmy Dore, puts a lot of stuff out there like that. And um, and you don't expect kind of the old, you know, a generation or two back, you don't expect them to put put out comedy theory uh, in the same way. But man, oh man, Joan Rivers absolutely does. There's a, there's a really wonderful scene that I, I'm sure some people have heard about. 
where she's performing a gig in, I think, Minnesota or Wisconsin. And she's doing, admittedly, she's doing a bit about Helen Keller. I don't know what the bit is. but uh, And then someone who has a daughter or son, I think it was a son, uh, has a son that, that is deaf, stood up and was yelling at her and was very upset with her. And she was a heck, he was a heckler and she shut him down mm-hmm. a lot and quite expertly, by the way. And what's more, from a craftsmanship standpoint, somehow as if it were planned, spun the heckle into a, into a bit as if it was always like that. It was really fascinating. But then afterwards, like, but in, as she was talking to the heckler, she put out this idea of what comedy is supposed to be and that nothing is off limits because once things start to be off limits, then whatever that thing is wins. I know it's kind of a kind of a yeah. cliche concept, but she's putting that stuff out there. And you don't think of Joan Rivers like that. You think of her as this weird faced woman on the red making catty comments on the red carpet and she is that but she's so much more and what's more uh, it's not that she was so much more she is that now she's still she's in her 70s and she still does clubs I think people she's really amazing so again to, to do the to pull tyler and talk about we haven't seen um i am like you said a comedy nerd i understand i know some things about joan rivers and her sort of persona of the like uh brash and sexually frank female comic mm-hmm. um has been done a number of times within our lifetime yeah. so sometimes it's um difficult for someone our age to understand how important and kind of you know to put it would be how ballsy yeah. That it, people like Joan Rivers and Phyllis Diller were absolutely, yeah. Uh, I would, l- I'd love to see a documentary about Phyllis Diller. I, I'm mm-hmm. more and more fascinated by her as as uh, the more I find out. But uh, yeah, and also, and it, now, of course, all that is to say that's what I found out about her from the documentary. But uh, the 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 filmmaker's willingness to to just stick with her and show the various sides of her because there are moments when she does not look very good, both physically and. Uh, and in what she's saying, you know, she'll mm-hmm. say some pretty rough things, but, um, but just, it feels so comprehensive and you get a good sense. I, I would venture to say like Restrepo, but completely different. You get a very good sense of what her life is because mm-hmm. she works seven days a week. It could be any, you know, she could be on a home shopping network talking about a piece of jewelry and then go right from there to the airport and fly to a gig in Wisconsin. From there, fly back to Los Angeles, get, uh, get, you know, get home, go to sleep, wake up, and then go do something else for E or something. Mm -hmm. And so, and the camera's there the whole time, and they don't, they, they don't cut out things for time. They want to show how this woman lives and give us an idea of like, yeah, this person that you thought was a joke at age 75 works way more than anybody else. And when some people are slowing down, she just wants to keep it going. It's just a really, it's it's a really wonderful film about a really fascinating person, and uh, I just really loved it. Okay, my number six is uh, a film by David Fincher called The Social Network. Okay, keep going. So, what's your number five? My number five is The Fighter. Okay, a film that you hate. I do not hate it. It's feel pretty like far ha- down the list. I feel like you hate it, and by extension, me. I liked it. Better than Shutter Island, okay, but not as much as Rare Exports: A Christmas Tale. 
man, I want to see that movie. I'm becoming more and more fascinated by it. Um, but uh, yeah, I uh, I love the movie way more than I thought I was going to. Um, it looks so standard, and in many ways it is. The story is very standard. Uh, but I mean, it's David O. Russell who I've been I've been a fan of his for a long time. I even liked. I Heart Huckabee is a movie that not many other people really like. I like that one a lot. Okay, good. Um, and so it's like, well, what is what is this going to look like? David O. Russell directing a very conventional story. And uh, I like pretty much every choice he made. I know that there are some character things that uh But they're also just general for. choices. Like I talked about on our 200th episode with, with Jimmy Pardo and Matt Belknap of Never Not Funny. Um like the uh there there are certain things that he definitely livened up the the formula with the, some David O. Russell touches. I pretty much all the way through that first training sequence, like the first the introduction at the very beginning and then the credits thing when uh when Mark Wahlberg is working on the road crew and, and Dickie's like shadow boxing him and that first training sequence that Dickie's late for and then he actually gets there and they start training and it's uh set to that breeder song um that i always forget the name of summer is ready when you are anyway i was like i love this movie but then i felt like david russell just wasn't interested in bringing his touch to like the the drug addiction story like he, it, there are certain elements of the formula that he that in my opinion he just let coast on the formula and as I and as as I mentioned about that uh, in episode two hundred with Never Not Funny's Jimmy Pardo and Matt Belknap, um, don't know why we're doing this now, but I, I guess we kind of have to. The uh, it 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 doesn't actually bother me that they don't delve into uh, Dickie's addiction, and they actually it surprises me how much they did. Like they sh- like showing him in prison, showing him it, watching the special and stuff like to that. To me, it's not about the amount of screen time. Okay. It's just that there. You know, we keep coming back to this idea that it's kind of a formulaic story. It's a story we've seen before, and so yeah, those those elements are given screen time, but they're he's not bringing anything new. And I expect David O. Russell to do for the drug addiction thing that what he did for the war movie in Three Kings, right? Except that this isn't a drug addiction movie. That is a supporting. He is right. Dicky is a supporting role, and. And I think if it were Dickie's movie, Dickie already had a movie made about him. I mean, it wasn't completely about him, but like, I don't know. And I think I think it's it's interesting that, uh, I mean, Christian Bale is magnetic. I would venture to say, uh, just a really fascinating performance, and and the character himself is is dynamic. Whereas Mickey, played by Mark Wahlberg, he is not necessarily bland. That makes it sound like it's bad writing or whatever. He just fades away. In the midst of this family, he just fades away and lets everyone else do everything. And Mark Wahlberg is actually uniquely suited to play that type of uh, character because he can actually be kind of a very soft-spoken actor. And over the course of the film, Dickie is just this freaking this presence that is just over everybody. And then as Mickey starts to assert himself, not necessarily aggressively, but just start to be like, 
yeah, I guess I deserve a say in my own life, right? <laughs> I do? Okay, that's great. As he starts to, Dickie starts to recede a little bit, and then we realize, oh, this was Mickey's story all along. And that's something that I I like. I think that's that's one of the things that, that uh, David R. Russell does, is that we start off thinking it's one thing, and then probably about halfway through, it doesn't fit into, a, would say, a traditional structure, Halfway through, we realize what it actually is, mm-hmm. as opposed to what we thought it was, and certainly what their family thought it was. Their family thought it was Dickie all the way, even as this kid is doing, even as Mickey is doing well, and Dickie is addicted to uh, crack, right? I believe he's crack. <laughs> Again, Edward Herman showed back up. <laughs> but uh, even as even as Dickie's life is being flushed down the toilet and Mickey is actually doing pretty well, the whole family is st- and the whole town is still hitching their hopes to Dickie, which is why it comes as a surprise to them and a surprise to us that Mickey's the one who does well. Mickey's the one who emerges. And, mm-hmm. I, and I like that the film is structured that way. You know why? Why is that? Because he's the fighter. Not sure you, is. not you, <laughs> and not you. Paul Goebel has one of my favorite things <laughs> where it's just like, I have to fight this. Not you. Not you. Maybe you. I don't think you. I think maybe you, but definitely not you. <laughs> and just goes. To, I think he goes, spends like forty-five seconds on it. But, um, and I just, I really, I just really responded to that attitude of. And I'm going to be repeating a lot of the things that that I said. In episode, episode two hundred with Jimmy Pardo and Matt Belknap from Never Not Funny. Yes, uh, available now. <laughs> Why wouldn't it be? It's a podcast. But uh, it's, yeah, like I'm going to, where that it's just, and then what I like is that, now I know that you and I have different different uh, opinions on, on where things go with Melissa Leo's character. You think she turns in, uh, rather monstrous, and I think she turns into... Well, I just think she becomes one note. One note, which is possible. I'd, I'd say that's possible. I happen to like the note that she's playing, mm-hmm. and and I think it makes sense because suddenly her family's in danger, and that's all she cares about. She only has one motivation at that point. Whereas, uh, and what I like is that the film, he could have just, the film could have gone the easy route and said, he just needs to get away from his family. Or he just needs to embrace his family. It chooses to be both because that's what we have. First off, it's true stories, and that's what he right. did. But also, that's what we all have to do for the most part. I mean, unless we have a truly horrible family that like physically hurts us or whatever. Um, it's I don't know. Like we all have to contend with the situation that we've been presented with, and he sh- and that's the thing is he's of course he's fighting these bouts and all that, but he's also fighting. F- to have a voice in his own family and he still loves his family and he knows that they love him. They don't want to control him. They just think they know what's best for him. And it's just such a fascinating, and I, I like the shift, uh, another shift where we are, we are shown that, Oh, Amy Adams character is, Oh, she's the loving one. Whereas his mom is, is, is very controlling. But then we see him falling into a similar pattern with Amy Adams, and she's starting to control him because he's letting her. And and that's why that big scene where he's finally, the not you, not you scene, uh-huh. where he's finally telling off literally everyone, that is not a typical scene for a movie like this. It's usually he tells off the bad people and embraces the good. 
but instead it's him saying this is this is actually kind of my fault that I've let all of you dominate me like this. Yeah. And it's really I don't know I just really respond to the movie uh, a great deal, but uh, yeah yeah it's, I, I I see most of what you're saying I think maybe I just I you guess just hate fighting David. No, I think I just held I expected certain things from David O. Russell, and I feel like he let me down. Not to the point that Roman Polanski or Paul Greengrass did. Okay. Um, there's there you know there's a lot of things that I love about the fighter, yeah. And I'd say there's probably, in terms of just screen time, there's more stuff I liked than didn't. But the stuff that I didn't like, weighed the movie down for me. Okay, fair enough. All right, what do we got? So we got your number five. Number five for me. Chris Morris's feature length debut, Four Lions. Okay, go right ahead. This is a movie that I. I would I would sort of compare it to um not that it's anything like it but I would compare it to uh, John McNaughton's uh is it John McNaughton? Uh Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Yes, John McNaughton. Um David, come on. I forgot his first name. That's and, a that's a Columbia graduate. Yeah, I know his name is McNaughton. Okay. John isn't, you know, it didn't leap out at me. But not that this is a film about serial killers, it's a film about murderers, but more in the sense of when you're watching it, it's like, this exists. Like, someone made this movie. This is insane. Now, just to remind people, I know we've talked about it on the show before. Right. In, uh, let's say, one sentence, what's uh, this film about? Four Lions is about um, a cell, a group of uh, Muslim terrorists living in London who... Fully intent on becoming suicide bombers. Um, and the movie is so so audacious in that that's what it's about. And it's a comedy. And not only is it a comedy, it's hilarious. This movie is so funny. The, uh, like, there are there are parts of the movie that I think that make me, like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, hesitant to revisit it because it is so upsetting. Um, and there are other parts that I can't wait to watch again because it's so funny. Um, and what, I, I, not enough people have seen it that I could just, and you haven't even seen it. So I can't just part of what I want to do is just talk about the stuff that happens in the movie because it's so nuts and some of it's so funny and some of it's so sickening. Um, but I can't do that because I don't want to spoil anything for anyone. Well, avoiding that, let's let's try this because I'm sure you have an opinion on this as I'm sure everybody would. Uh-huh. Uh, philosophically. That's what I was going to get at. Actually. Okay. All right. What's this, what's, what makes I don't this, have a problem with it, by the way. What makes the movie great is that the philosophy of the characters, the movie is completely uninterested in exploring their politics, their religion, their philosophy – or ref, you know refuting them with uh the christian or western politics religion and philosophy mm-hmm. it's just about these are the kind of like real world these are the kind of people who actually do this the people who are into the the, the people who are the mouthpieces of the movement or of the religion or of the political group aren't the ones blowing themselves up because they're mm. the intellectuals. They 
can do more for the movement by talking. The people who they convince to blow themselves up are fucking morons. Yeah, I guess so. And, and so th- they, uh, you know, other than in broad strokes, you don't really get a sense of their, they're essentially just Londoners. Just working class Londoners, except that they're morons and they have beards, you know. But occasionally you get, like, when they're trying to pick their target, one of the guys says, we should blow up the drugstore because they sell condoms that make you want to bang white girls. (laughs) 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 So that's that's about as deep into their worldview as you go in the movie. Did I tell you? It's hilarious. That's pretty... That's... (laughs) Um... (laughs) Oh, I was expecting that. Yeah. I guess how could you be? But okay, so that's you know, that's a, that's as deep as it explores the worldview. That's also how dumb the characters are. But what the movie uh never forgets and doesn't let you forget is that uh these people are making explosives like they're they're complete morons who think they're doing something noble and They've got very powerful explosives, and the movie is a dark comedy, but what makes it so dark, and darker even than, say, like, you know, you could classify uh, Michael Lehman's Heathers as a dark comedy. It is, but the characters in Heathers are such caricatures that when they're killed, you don't really feel the weight of their death. Right. What makes Four Lions truly dark, truly disturbing, is that the idea of human beings dying, as stupid as most of the people, almost everyone in the movie is, um, they're still human beings. And so, I don't want to give too much away, but, you know, there are, people do die in this movie. It's, it, 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 it doesn't pull any punches in that sense. And there's a great... Um, there's a great part at the end where there's a British police hostage negotiator um, and you can tell and he's he's about as experienced a hostage negotiator as these people are suicide bombers and so it's sort of this this commentary that like we're all kind of just doing what we think we have to do it's not excusing it it's saying most people are not exactly intellectual. They're, uh, they're just guessing their way through stuff, doing what they think they're supposed to do. And uh, once you get out into the adult world, you're to borrow a phrase from Aaron Sorkin, you're playing with live ammo, and uh, it, it 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 is incredibly dangerous. And um, if we could. If we could educate people well enough to realize that blowing themselves up is not going to get anything done, then all the intellectual Muslim leaders or other, you know, uh, leaders of terrorist organizations, you know, or 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 hate groups. Mm-hmm. Um, the, by the way, I need to like parse my words and step lightly here because I want to make sure I'm not I'm not I'm not equating Muslim with hate group. I'm yeah, a, that a, all was kind of one sentence. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I knew what you meant, but I knew. Yeah, it, but yeah. I do want to like. Yeah, I'm not equating Muslim with hate group, but with 
the people that these Muslims in the film follow right. are definitely uh, a hate group. David, I'm t- I'm 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 angry at you for for uh, making that observation. I'm going to walk off set. Okay. Um, it's, uh, I'm poking fun at the uh, women of the view, but yeah. uh, well, when I when I mentioned uh, philosophically, uh, I guess one of my questions is. What would you say, and I'm, I, I'm not this person, I'm playing devil's advocate. Okay. Uh, what would you say to somebody who says, and I guess I've already kind of tipped my hand by talking about what Joan Rivers said in her documentary, mm-hmm. but somebody who would approach this movie and say, how dare you make fun of this? How dare you make fun of the, the evil that, that, not necessarily, yeah, evil, I mean, killing people is evil. Um, how dare you make light of this? People are dying because of people like these men. So why are why on earth are you making a joke of it? I think there's something. Um, you know, we talked about all the podcasts that um, we listen to that are comedy podcasts and talk about what comedy is about. Right. And Mark Maron talks about how comedy is disarming. And I think when you it's a good word for it when you become it, if you feel that something can't be treated lightly at all, you almost glorify it or make it just this inhuman problem like this is you make it beyond your reach by by saying you can't there's comedy is human right and by saying if you say you can't make jokes about this then you're saying it's beyond my reach to relate to as a human being right what chris morris i think is saying is what i said that there are solutions like if we treated these people as humans maybe we could convince them better than if we just treat them as uh, some sort of abstract. Right. I mean, they are more of a... I mean, they might as well... In many ways, the word terrorist might as well be ninja at this point. (laughs) Because it means... It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It just means this shadowy thing that's going to get me. Not that anybody thinks ninjas are going to get them. But uh, unless you watch the film Ninja Assassin, in which case, watch out. Those guys should be terrorists if the they way, get the job there's done. No, there's no use in thinking about whether or not ninjas are going to get you, because if they want to get you, they're going to. Oh, yeah. There's nothing you can do about it, so why waste the energy? If they were going to get you, you'd be dead a week ago. What do you think of that? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, I think I think assigning a face to it, even if that face is comical and ridiculous, uh-huh. it still says... Yeah, they're just the same jackasses as the rest of us. Just because they, you know, are trying to attain this thing that we may not understand doesn't make them any smarter or or deeper thinkers or anything like that. I mean, it's yeah, I, I think that's an interesting an interesting philosophy. Um and one that for a film like this, like you said, it's it's fascinating to know that wow, this film it's like a real thing that got made. It got made. <laughs> yeah. It's not just me, you know, it's not just me with my little uh, Hitler script that I wrote in college. It's like, isn't this funny? I'm not going to make it, of course. Someone made it. Yeah. I got to see it. Yeah. Very excited. It's been, it comes out on Blu-ray uh, March 8th, and I'm hoping Barnes & Noble stocks it because I got a gift certificate <laughs> with four lines written all over it. Oh, man. Is it really just... Uh, that may not be a real gift certificate, David. But uh, All right, number four for Tyler. Okay, we're ca- starting to catch up here, David. Okay. Winter's Bone. All right. This is my number nine. Okay. Well, you talk. It's You talk first. It's your... Because it's higher up for me? Yeah, and because I just talked about Four Lions for like half an hour. 
Uh, yeah, Winter's Bone is a, a film that in many ways I, I had heard good things about. Uh, I knew that it took place in southern Missouri. I knew that there are people that I went to high school with in the film. Did you recognize them? Yes. Oh, wow. Uh, like they had speaking roles. Uh, one guy I went to high school with and the sister of another guy I went to high school with. Uh, and uh, very st- that in itself is very strange. Um, <laughs> partially because like there's uh, this this weird... I feel I'm, I'm angry at myself now because it's just like... So let me get this straight. This guy that I went to high school with and didn't do really anything and just stayed in southern Missouri and probably will die there. (laughs) He's in an Oscar-nominated film. I go to Chicago and then to Los Angeles, having gotten a degree in film along the way. What do you have to show for it? Nothing. Nothing. You know what? This. Yeah. So nothing. Yeah. This is nothing. Not a thing. You're all wasting your time listening yeah. to us. Except, except Movie Maker Magazine. They said that we are worth a listen. <laughs> right, you're right. I take it all back. Um, We're doing better than that guy. We do all right. But uh, but yeah, and so uh, so there there was that. But uh, I remember going into it expecting caricature. I was really expecting to, you know, uh, see a bunch of southern people that look like, look like something out of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? or something like that. And what what I was, what the reality was, was just a very raw. It was very. It, people have said it's very noiry in a lot of ways, uh-huh. and I could see that. Uh, but it's just people that it, all the characters feel very lived in the location. Certainly do, and of course it was shot on location, so that helps a great deal. But uh, it just created this entire underworld in a place where people don't usually associate that with the underworld. And, um, and it just, it, it all had a, a feeling of being while also being very stylized, uh, or stylish, I should have said, um, it also feels very real. Like all of these people could exist. This situation could exist. Um, and while it, the, the one, it's not even so much a critique, but while the film may have more of a backwoods feel to it that I don't think completely exists having lived in Southern Missouri. Um, like we, we have stores and stuff we have, you know, there are nice cars that you'll find there from time to time. They're not all beat up jalopies. Uh, but, but that's the thing. These weren't, I don't know. I, I disagree even with that. Okay. I don't think they're saying there aren't stores. These people had stuff. Right. That's just not part of the story. We right. barely we we don't really go into town except for to go to the police station. And I think these people live even further out than right than where you're used to. And uh, no, they don't have nice new cars, but they all have pickup trucks. And if you if you notice, watch if you watch the movie again, um, those pickup trucks might be. 25 30 years old but they're very well taken care of oh they're my usually yes. clean you know they're like uh it, it was a thing that i should say that winter's bone was the first movie i ever watched on blu-ray okay. um from beginning to end when i got my blu-ray player i threw in some some stuff just to look at it right. but the first movie i sat down and watched on blu-ray was winter's bone and the way that these 1983 ford pickup trucks were preserved yeah uh really leapt out to me and and it's yeah i I don't mean to give the impression that the filmmakers 
think that this is how these people live, uh, that they're just living shacks or whatever. Um, but that uh, I, I, maybe I was uh, specifying that in case anybody gets that impression. But um, as I as I did when I first moved to Missouri <laughs> from Denver. But, uh, but again, the movie doesn't take place in shacks. There's a part in a barn, but that's not where they live. They live in houses. Yeah, but the houses are not very well taken care of. But you're absolutely right. The cars are. Uh, yeah. And... Um, and it's and there's an attention to detail there that I really appreciate, um, and I, I don't want to make it sound like I don't know why I'm bringing up things I don't like about the movie. What I what I love is of course the characters, pretty much all of them, because there there weren't any caricatures, whether it be of a country type or a oh this character is a villain, so obviously they're bad in every way. Uh, I don't remember the name of the character. I wish I did. The I'm going to say the bad guys or crime boss seems a little lofty, but I'll use that. Uh-huh. His wife. Yeah, I can't remember the character's name either, but she is... I had to look it up. I spent the whole movie going, what do I know her from? Okay. And I don't think you actually have seen uh, season two of Breaking Bad. No, I haven't. But um, she is the uh, meth head in one episode of season two of Breaking Bad who kills her boyfriend by tipping an ATM machine over on his head. Oh, my. <laughs> so I had to look it up. But, yes, that was her. But a character like hers is really just amazing because what I love is how infused the story and the characters are with the location. Mm-hmm. Because it's not merely a noir story that could have really taken place anywhere but it happens to take place here. The and I also don't like to be someone's like, oh, the 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 Ozarks are like another character. I don't think that. But no. it it you know as you've said before, where somebody lives is going to influence how they act, and there's a certain degree of people have heard of it, Southern hospitality, mm-hmm. that even the criminals subscribe to, where. The, the you know, the boss's wife uh, wants this girl to stop asking questions and go away. But I think she still gives her, like, a cup of hot chocolate or tea or whatever it was. Yeah. And then it, I won't spoil the end, but when she confronts her again, it's just like, I'm sorry I have to do this. Yeah. But it needs to be done. You just, you know, there's there's a, it just seems so, it seems to exist where it's supposed to be, as opposed to, hey, this seems like a neat idea. Um, let's have a film noir story take place in a rural location. Doesn't that sound like fun? It it blends the two together uh, in a way. I mean, I would I would compare the movie to films like A Simple Plan or Red Rock West. Actually, yes, okay. I was going to say Red Rock West because okay. there's another element. I'll throw it to you now that I want to get to. These the people who you know live this kind of life or live in this kind of place that's more rural um they're they're separate they're separate from society in a lot of ways and that sometimes that's by choice and sometimes they just grow to believe that that's the way things should be mm-hmm. it, it 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 goes back to this sort of uh Michigan militia, like, don't tread on me. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can have my gun when you pry it from my cold dead fingers kind of mentality. Mm. Um, 
which is um I, I don't know enough about the world to know if it's unique to America, but it does feel like very much a part of what America is. This idea that America is a nation of individuals and um some people take that to different levels. Yeah. And these people and a lot of other people who live in small town towns like that um and it's coming up on this uh, current second season of Justified right now too the idea that we want to take care of things within our group within our community right not have to reach out to the outside and not trust anyone who's from the state or from the government and that not you know not only does that make it a dangerous place for an outsider but for an insider who wants to get out, it's almost impossible. And that's what right. brings me back to Red Rock West. Red Rock West makes almost a joke about it actually, no, not almost a joke. Red Rock, part of the joke of Red Rock West is that it's impossible for Nick Cage to get out of this small town. Right. Um, and there's nothing funny about it in, in Winter's Bone, but it is such a, it's such a cloistered society that, um, you know, she goes to every resource she has to get things done, but she doesn't have much much of a reach. And it should be noted, her goal is not to necessarily get out. It's just right. to live, and that requires asking questions about how all of these people are living. And that is enough to yeah. get her sort of targeted yeah. by, by these people. Um, and, uh, and, and I did in the face with that same coffee mug that she exactly. drank tea out of. Boy, she sure does. Uh, and I did want to mention real quick, one thing, one, one little, uh, thing that I love about the film is of course, John Hawk's character, uh, teardrop, uh-huh. uh, his name that I do recall. Uh, how could you <laughs> not? But, uh, and what I like about it is the way he is treated that at first he's unsympathetic. And then once he gets on, he plays the the uncle of uh, of our main uh, our protagonist, and once he gets, you don't on, remember her name. Don't I don't remember her name. Jennifer Lawrence is the actress. Yeah, but, but uh, her name is not Teardrop, so right. I don't recall. <laughs> but uh, but the, he uh, has. Uh, sorry, uh, finish your thing. Okay. I'll say what I was going to say All right. about Teardrop. But uh, one, so he it takes him a while to get on board with her and what she's trying to do, but once he does. You almost feel you feel a sense of relief that like all right she's got an adult on her side finally and then you rem- then you realize this guy's a mess yeah this, he can well, only make things worse you know how we were talking about um, uh, Jackie Weaver in Animal Kingdom mm-hmm. goes from seeming nice to it's revealed how much of a danger she is right teardrops almost the other way around I mean he's still a mess and yes. very dangerous. But it's to the movie's credit that we kind of feel for him and almost kind of like him by the end, given his first scene. Oh, I think we definitely like him. Um, um, the well, he has is, a line okay. in his first scene. I can't remember what he tells his wife to do, but he says it again, and he says, I already told you once with my mouth. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, yeah, he's not, a sim- he's not necessarily a sympathetic guy at the beginning, uh, but by the end, once he starts to be more on board uh, and try and tries to help. You realize, like he's not much of an asset, actually, and is actually only a liability. And that's one of the things that I like about the way the film is structured is that, like you said, he lives in this world, and so if you're trying to get something done that doesn't fit in with what is kind of the standard thing, 
it doesn't matter if someone's against you or someone's with you. It's it. You're only going to be able to do so much because the person who's with you is not that different than the person that's against you. And uh, and I, I really liked uh, that aspect of certainly the way he plays it, um, but also just what they choose for that character to be. So did you say what you wanted to say about him? Yes. Okay. So right. let's move on to my number four. Yeah. Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim versus the world. All right. Um, <clears throat> we call films movies for a reason. Sounds like a dissertation. <laughs> but I mean, one of the things that you can do with film that you can't do with a still photograph uh, has to do with its kineticism. You can't even really do it to the same extent with a play because you're still locked into the proscenium and what's right. underneath it. Um, a movie can twist and turn around not just in its plot but just throughout its world. It can create a world and fly through it at any angle and any pace that it wants. And um, movies don't always you know, go all out because that would sometimes be wrong for the movie and would often be annoying. And then sometimes it would, it leads to something like natural born killers. Um, but, uh, Edgar Wright is a guy who I think, I think he loves movies, not just in the nerdy way that you and I like to, you know, we, we love the history of movies and what different movies can do. He, I think Edgar Wright just likes to live in movies, and uh, it, it's uh, it's not an experimental or non-narrative film, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Right. But it does, I think, push out the boundaries of what we can see, what we can expect from a motion picture. Interesting. Um, yeah, uh... I just had a lot of fun. Uh, the, yeah, it's it's a film that uh, you, kineticism is a good is a good way to a good word to use uh, in reference to the film because it just as I mean we've we've spoken about the film ad nauseum so I don't necessarily want to go into a great deal more detail but uh, but the the way that he has such a firm handle on every aspect of filmmaking, not to imply that he has a vice grip on it or anything like that. <laughs> it doesn't, cause that, that implies a cer- there's also a certain degree of coldness to those types of movies. Um, like a David Cronenberg or a Stanley Kubrick, right? But, uh, both good filmmakers. Don't get me wrong. But, um, he, he has such a firm handle on how he's going to use the editing how he's going to use the special effects, how he's going to use the actors. There, he doesn't necessarily favor any one thing. He he uses all of them as resources to evoke a mood or create an emotion, not manipulate one, but create one. And and it's just, like for example, like very seldom he just uses all all of the tools at his disposal. And uh and we've ta- we've spoken in the past about like you know, using editing, very seldom do directors uh, or do comedy directors use editing to deliver a joke. 
usually the joke happens within something and then we cut because it it serves a functional purpose or it's on to the next scene. Uh, Edgar Wright really has a uh, certainly with Shaun of the Dead, even more so with Hot Fuzz, and definitely with Scott Pilgrim. He has a strong sense of I've got the camera, I've got the editing. Why not use that too? Why uh-huh. be completely dependent on the writing and the acting to deliver a punchline? And there are visual punchlines in the film, which are asta- and editorial punchlines in the film, and that is astounding to me. He is he has such a sure hand. Um, he, yeah, sure hand is right because the way he uses the camera is uh, ballsy, and if you had anything less than a sure hand would be disastrous. Oh, absolutely. He does I don't know if you uh, I, I don't know if it's this is 100% true but it's uh, it, largely true that even in like he never repeats a setup in the movie. Like even if it's a back and forth dialogue shot each time it goes back to the other actor it'll be a different setup than you've seen before. Mm-hmm. It, the camera will be at a different angle or something. Um that should be overkill, and I'm sure in 99% of directors' hands, that would be just exhausting and horrible and annoying. But uh, he uses it in a way to keep the movie from ever standing still. And it's not just he's not just varying the shots; he's using a shot that he's sequencing them as well in a way that you would like a comic book, which is what Scott Pilgrim, uh, you know, started as. <clears throat> he's moving the story along, even if the scene is just two people talking. Right. He's moving the movie and the story along by choosing different shots every time. Which almost, it, it, I agree with that, but it almost makes it sound like a, l- a little too dry as if he's only working to move the story along. He is also in the midst of it creating, uh, c- revealing new things about character. Yeah. And, Let, let's get and into that. creating the world. Um, um, I also rewatched Shaun of the Dead recently, and these are both kind of you know crazy, hyper real. You know, they're out there, man. These movies, uh, but their emotional elements really work, and not just in a manipulative way, but in a way that the characters in Shaun of the Dead and Scott Pilgrim and Hot Fuzz, although it's been a while since I've seen that one, um they really have learned something by the end and not in a, in a trite way either. Like the movie, Edgar Wright's movies are not only hilarious, they're about something like he's trying to say something. Usually his movies are about, uh, characters. Let's talk about Scott Pilgrim in particular, a character, his uh, Scott Pilgrim's arc is going from being, uh, callow to, realizing that he needs to grow up. Mm-hmm. It's not... At the end of Scott Pilgrim, He neither he nor Ramona... Because, you know, it's Scott's movie first, but Ramona is a, not just a device in the movie. She's a character of her own who also has an arc, and it's pretty much the same arc as Scott's. They both, at the end of the movie, have realized that they're kind of assholes. Yeah. And that's where the movie ends. They don't become great, great people by the end of the movie. They're not in love at the end of the movie. There's a every chance that I'm assuming most people who are listening have seen it. There's every chance that their relationship is going to fail. Right. But they've taken the first step, which is, and that's, I think that's the key is it's not, they have not arrived at their destination, nor does the movie end with them 
thinking, hey, you know what? I think I may need to head in this direction. It starts with, it ends with their first step. Yeah. And, I mean, they're visualized by, of course, them walking through a door uh-huh. and all that sort of thing. I mean, it's, and there are a lot of people that really had a problem with uh, uh, finding Scott unsympathetic uh, in the film. And it's like, well, he's not necessarily supposed to be sympathetic. He is supposed to be charming. Uh-huh. And li- there's a difference between being sympathetic and likable because he's a guy who's something of a lady killer and can make friends easily. He questions himself all the time, but he is able to tap into an inherent likability and an inherent charm so that he can better manipulate people to do what he wants, which makes him right. unsympathetic. Likable and sympathetic aren't the same thing. Yeah, He is unsympathetic, but he's incredibly likable um, and very watchable. And I, I think that uh, it was a good move to cast Michael Sarah. And I think he explores emotionally things about his own persona in the part uh, that he hasn't previously. Right. So, yeah, a really good movie that uh, the reason that it kind of it's my number. What is that? Seven. Okay. Yes. It's my number seven, which is not very low. But the reason that it, it dropped out of like my top three or four, um, I watched it a second time and I actually I, I I'm very attuned not to imply that other people aren't. I think I might be hypersensitive to uh tone and over and and the idea of overkill uh-huh. and that cl- the climax of that movie after a while like once neg like when negascott shows up i i know that the the attitude of the audience is supposed to be like oh shit here it comes my attitude is like really another one and then of course but it, it plays on that. and then it play it plays on that for both for both things but like uh but i don't know my, whether it playing on it is incidental to my attitude of like, really? Another one? Like, I don't think that's the attitude I was supposed to have. The, but uh, again, that by, that might be my own thing. I should mention the um, the conversation between Scott and Nega Scott is my girlfriend's favorite thing in the movie. It is very funny. And it and that's the thing. is like, just when I'm starting to get a little tired of what he's doing, he opts to do something completely different uh-huh. and freaking wins me over. So, all right. What's your number three? Number three is the Social Network. Okay, I saw that. It's my number six. All right. Uh, so, do you want to talk about it or should I? You should. Okay. First. Um, yeah, I'm fascinated by people who still, and I still find them on message boards and stuff, who say like, who still have the attitude of like a movie about Facebook. Really? It's like, what? What are you insane? <laughs> I mean, I hate to be dismissive, but at the same... Well, they're being dismissive when they say that. Um, But it's just like... Because it's not a movie about Facebook, the thing. It's about... Facebook could be anything. It's about the people who created it, and those people could be anybody. It is an inherently... Well, those people that you have heard, they're just not paying attention. That must be... It astounds me. People saying that when... I I was sort of like that when... It was announced that David Fincher was making a movie and Aaron Sorkin was writing it, and it was about Facebook. Or I think this is was, before we knew it was based on the accidental billionaire. Exactly. It was just the Facebook movie, a uh, movie about Facebook. That I think that was the title and subtitle of the film. Um, <laughs> but uh, and when I heard that, I'm like, how are they going to make a movie out of the website? And then once you discover, oh, it's about the founding of Facebook, it's like, okay, legitimate, fine, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Some people never moved past that. It's like, really. 
it, it fascinates me. But that's the thing is, the film is very specific, and in doing so, it, we keep going back to this this principle of uh, specificity being more uh, more uh, applicable relatable. and relatable than something broad. And the fact that it's Facebook, like I said, it could be anything. It could be. Uh, it could be an idea, it could be an invention, it could be any number of things. And that's what makes the film inherently, I'm sorry, I'm going to get a little lofty, American. It's the idea that anybody can do anything, but get ready, because there are people that are going to wish they did that. And then, why are you doing... And, and also, it questions the motivations of somebody who's willing to go this far to succeed... Why are they willing to go that far? Should they be willing to go that far? And it really just and it explores motivations. So that's what it's doing. Uh, motivations uh, in American attitudes and capitalistic attitudes. Whereas, so that's what it's doing broadly. But it's also it never strays from being very specific to this story. And so thematically, I really like it. I'm really on board with it. Um, and I just happen to like stories like that where somebody gets everything they want only to find. Uh, they don't. They never knew what they wanted. You know, we know what they want because the one one thing that I would say is a minor, not necessarily flaw. And again, this might be me being hypersensitive. Is how specific and obvious uh, they make Mark Zuckerberg's uh, motivations, which is the the final clubs and uh, Erica Albright breaking up with them. And just in case you missed it, they keep. Pointing back to it, whether it is whether it's he sees her at a bar, she dismisses him again, and now it's time for us to in- involve other schools. Like right. there's a clear cause and effect that keeps coming up. Uh, that kind of bothers me. It's like we, you, you did a, a very good job at the beginning of establishing these as motivations. You don't have to keep underlining them. Um, but uh, but there's a, there is a nice bookend. I love the way the film ends with him doing the friend request because it's still him wanting to be accepted even on even completely on his own terms which is Facebook she's on a thing that he created completely and has billions of dollars uh, for creating but he still wants her acceptance it's it's very simple but it's very uh, very real especially for somebody like myself who so desperately wants acceptance from everybody now that that scene at the end um, I have to wonder how the movie I mean you say that the it doesn't have to be Facebook but to people who don't use Facebook, like me, like I was pretty sure that he was. So he's. I was like, I had to ask my girlfriend, like on the car ride on the way home. I was like, so he's hitting refresh to see if she's accepted his request, right? right? And I was right, but I feel like there are people who maybe are even less aware of Facebook or savvy about it than I am, for whom that last shot doesn't mean anything. It's just him. That's clicking. true, and that and that is very specific. But I would compare it to. Uh, I mean, I think I've, I, I might have said this before on the show, but uh, I would compare it to a sports movie or like a movie about poker where it's like it's less about the rules and specifics of poker as it is the people playing. And by not getting bogged down in the specifics of Facebook, and it, sh- it gives us just enough like relationship status and, mm-hmm. and photos and stuff. Um, it gives us just enough that we remember oh yes i have a fa- i well you don't you probably don't have this thought oh yes i have a facebook account i remember doing that <laughs> um but uh yes i think that last shot does require a certain degree of uh 
I don't know, a certain degree of uh, familiarity? familiarity with uh, with Facebook and perhaps with the internet in general. <laughs> okay. But um, uh, yeah, you pretty much said what I need, what I would have said, but I do want to have a few words because it's my number. <laughs> it is my number six. Yes, go right ahead. Um, the, this is just, uh, and I'm again, I'm going to repeat. Well, we we did a whole episode that was inspired by my reaction to the Facebook mo- to the, the Facebook movie, to the social network um, about a- abstract versus narrative art right. in film, and this is uh, about the most. I mean, it's not really a short movie, but it's told like there's not a wasted bit of screen time or dialogue uh, in the entire movie. It's uh, it's. I almost want to. I almost wanted to say sleek, but that has a connotation. It's not slick. It's sleek, but not slick. Nice. Uh, sleek is a very good word for it. Yeah, it's it's almost aerodynamic. Like it it. It, uh, the way it moves from scene to scene uh, is economical and again sleek uh, in, in in a way that makes a movie about people typing and talking not only fun to watch but like edgy or seat entertainment and surprisingly exhilarating. Yeah, um, it does a very good job of of capturing the excitement that these people feel as they're doing this. And I think it's it's such an interesting thing because one thing that we do know about David Fincher as a filmmaker is that he is methodical and uh, what's another word for... Exacting? Sure, that's good. Um, relentless could be another word. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I, I like a lot of what Tenacious? He's, tenacious, I would say, yes. Um, I don't know, tenacious... Almost makes it sound as if there's something outside his grasp. Ah. Nothing is outside his grasp when he is making a film. He's very... Dictatorial. There, Hey, there's an option. Um, fascistic. But... Uh, Look at us. I know. But uh, that's the thing. All that makes... It, uh, all that is very... That makes him sound very negative. Um, but I mean, you know, you hear that like that first scene between Mark Zuckerberg and Erica, they did 99 takes of that scene. Yeah. That's... I'm sorry. Insane. Uh-huh. <laughs> One could say batshit crazy, <laughs> but uh, but that's the thing is he his cold clinical exacting approach worked surprisingly well to rein in the fluidity and expansiveness of an Aaron Sorkin, and you would never think that those two things would go well together, but somehow Sorkin's his speechifying and and all that helps to really humanize uh, a, the fi- yeah, a film directed by a guy who I, whose films I would not immediately describe as human. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas his uh, I don't know discipline as a director helps to ground the flowery dialogue, and you it's such an odd pairing, but it seems it, it works so incredibly well. Um, and I've also determined, uh, I, I'm not the first one to determine this, uh, everyone before me did, uh, and, but I had forgotten about it, uh, just how effective that score is. Oh, man. That's a really oh, wonderful man. score. But, right. uh, yes, so, social network. Number three for me, exit through the gift shop. All right. Go um, ahead, David. It's been so long, <laughs> I think I saw it a year ago, almost, at oh, this my. point. I mean, maybe in March. I saw it. So, yeah, almost a year ago. Um, 
Okay. I guess let's address the elephant in the room here. Okay. Whether or not this movie is staged. I feel like you and I have had this conversation, but I can't remember if there were microphones in front of us when we did it. Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Um, I am going to be in the minority camp and say I think it's largely not. I, I, I don't think it's staged. Okay. I also don't think it matters at all if it's staged. Uh, you just give me a nod and a point saying that Absolutely. you agree. It, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, because whether or not Mr. Brainwash is completely real, the reaction to him was. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is a movie about uh, the sort of dichotomy between an artist and his intentions and the intentions of the public that is receptive to the art. Yes. Um, you know, Banksy's art uh, is... You know, uh, just apart from any meaning or anything, aesthetically very pleasing. It's fun to look at at his mm-hmm. at, at at what he. I was going to say his paintings, but just his art. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds so vague. Like you know, he's a guy who does art. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, so what? I guess what I'm saying is it's. It's aesthetically pleasing. It's cool to look at. It's uh, it seems hip um, because it's ironic. Yeah. And I know, like, I mean, irony has been in for a long time, yeah. but it still is sort of a uh, an indicator of um, a younger culture. Yeah, I'd say that. Um, and and there's a, there's. Uh, an intentional irony uh to to his juxtapositions of not only one image next to another but using a familiar image uh you know like Charlie Brown or Mickey Mouse or Dorothy from Wizard of Oz or or whatever um I'm not sure if these are the ones in the movie but they're you know mm-hmm. using familiar images in unexpected ways uh so that makes it cool yeah um but Banksy does it for a reason. He means something. He's a very, you know, he's a very political artist. You know, whether it be, uh, you know, a Guantanamo detainee at Disneyland or um, the stencils he does on the wall in Jerusalem, um, he he means something. Yeah. The the the. The public isn't necessarily. This is what the movie is saying. The public isn't necessarily uh, seeing it that way. They might just be reacting to it aesthetically. Some of them might be reacting to it intellectually, right? But um, that prisoner at Disneyland thing, like, I I don't see how anybody could react to that except for political. But I guess I'm talking about the people who come to his show and buy stuff, right? Yes. You know, you don't necessarily want to hang th- hang something on your wall or most people don't want to hang something on their wall because of the statement it makes. They want to hang it on the wall because it's something they want to look at and they want others to see. Yeah, it created a feeling in them and they want to Yeah. They they want to own that feeling. Yeah. And that's not necessarily wrong. And I think that's I think what's great about the movie is that 
you know, if you think about it for a second, it seems like the public was duped by Mr. Brainwash. Mm-hmm. But when you really delve into it, they're enjoying it. The movie doesn't make fun of the people who came out to Mr. Brainwash's show. It, you know, it, it interviews a lot of people and most of them are having glowing reactions to it. And it doesn't cheapen that or make fun of it. Well, and there are some, even even in their glowing reactions, there are some that say... Uh, I mean, it's a little derivative, yeah. but it's raw and it's all these other things. And so, like, yeah, it does not uh, it doesn't make fun of them and make them all look like uh, sycophants or anything like that. Yeah, th- th- this is not a, a movie, you know, those who listen to Battleship Pretension know that we're not necessarily interested in coming up with solutions to our topics. We're just coming. We're just interested in exploring them. I just like the idea that the way you phrase that makes it sound as though we approach our topics as if they are problems. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and that's what Exit to the Gift Shop does. It explores the relationship between uh, or among an artist, his or her art, and the public that receives it. I think that's a, that's very much a great way to, to sum it up. Um I don't have much more to say beyond that, except, uh, yeah, I'm I'm actually of the opinion that uh, that some of the film was I'm not even I won't even say staged because of course people's reaction was real, the media's reaction was real. The only thing I mm-hmm. think might be staged or even fake has too much of a negative uh, connotation to it. But whatever you whatever you want to call it is the role of Mr. Brainwash who he is, who he's putting himself out there as, and of course with Banksy pulling the strings and all that. Now, the reason that I think that is because it's all too perfect. Okay. However, I don't care. I don't care if it's real. I don't care if it's not. Because like you said, it's it doesn't matter because if it's fake, it just as easily could have been real. Right. If it's real, it just as easily could be fake. The, the reaction uh, of the arts community is completely real uh-huh. and and i do find and, this, and i say course, that not only of someone who's seen the movie but you and i were in los angeles in 2008 when this happened we that, sure were it and, all happened and i saw those i saw those billboards all over the place and yeah, i remember there was being, the, you know they, they showed the color of la weekly with the uh campbell soup can turned into a spray paint can which is yep. one of mr brainwash's pieces that wasn't just a, they didn't make up that la weekly cover no. for the movie that was a real thing and a real story that i that i read yeah i i drove around and there was a thing that said life is beautiful art show 2008.com I was like huh what does that mean i never looked it up but uh <laughs> but yeah and then of course uh obama hillary and john mccain um dressed up as that billboard of them all in like marilyn monroe wigs right. and stuff and uh and being like what does that mean oh well uh but i saw <laughs> it every day and I, and i always had that exact thought cuz uh, i'm a neanderthal but uh but it's it's it is interesting that um and perhaps I'm perhaps I'm uh, reading too much into it. Although I feel like you can't read too much into this film. Uh, the The nature of how we react to art in the U.S. we see glaring examples of that in the film. That's mm-hmm. predominantly what it's about. But then you actually look at the way they react to Banksy's stuff in England, mm-hmm. which is they see the the obtuse uh, phone booth, for example. Uh-huh. Uh, and they think like, oh, I think that's a Banksy. That's Oh, that's very interesting. That's really interesting. And that's kind of it. <laughs> Here, 
It's like, well, well, who's this Mr. Brainwash that I've been hearing a billion things about and is everywhere that everywhere I look? I, I have to go. I need to be a part of it. One could say I would sit through four hours of the Super Bowl to see a, uh, uh, the, be the first one to see his, his paintings, right. for example, to tie everything in. Uh, there's just a very consumerist mentality. And, of course, the idea it's like it's not enough for me to just be there. Now I need to own it. Yeah. And and all these sorts of, sorts of things, and just the the way that art is just coincides so much with consumerism in this country. That's how we know what the good art is, right? Because <laughs> well somebody put, yeah. bought it, and it's just a really. And I, I apologize for sounding so cynical about it because I, I don't think I'm. Uh, I don't consider myself to be that cynical about uh, consumerism and how it relates to art, but I think. Everything that the film puts out there, as whether it's whether it did happen, whether it didn't, whether it all happened, but whether it's completely real and legit or not, everything about it could happen and has happened uh, in the past, and that's one of the things that I love. It is it's so it so expertly understands what it's exploring. I think I want to end the discussion of Exit of the Gift Shop by saying, if you haven't seen it, the discussion that Tyler and I just had about the themes was a little bit dry, and you should know that Exit of the Gift Shop is a blast to watch. It's a lot of fun. It's very funny and fun. Yeah. What's your number two? My number two is Toy Story 3. Let's talk about it later. All right. My number two is The Kids Are All Right. It sure is. Um, this is one that snuck up on me. I mean, I had been hearing about it a long time, for a long time, but I'd seen... Um, Lisa Cholodenko's yes. films before. I always get her confused with Nicole Hall of Center, who had another movie this year called Please Give. And frustrating last names. Yeah. Um, yes, Lisa Cholodenko. I'd seen uh, High Art. I'd seen Little Canyon. Um, I liked them both. And so I, I expected to like The Kids Are All Right. But I didn't expect this. The This... I know Tyler really disliked it, so we'll get to that in a second. Yep. But High Art and Laurel Canyon are both about specific groups of people, either be, be they like high artists or uh, you know former hippies or lesbians or some mix of them. And you know, reading the synopsis of Kids Are All Right, it seems like it might be the same thing. It's about Southern California liberal bourgeois lesbians and their kids right yeah i mean it it seems like a niche thing but the kids are all right is uh, a more universal treatise on family than i've seen in a long time i can't even think of any examples to to compare it to uh the 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 way that the bonds it explores the difference between the blood bonds of a family and the bonds that are formed just over time and proximity uh and um it's a movie that's full of full of life and joie de vivre it's also that's, uh, that's a good way to describe it yeah uh it's also a much more kinetic movie than i had come to expect from lisa Jolodenko. um you know, there's the part when uh, uh, Mia Vashikovska, I can't remember the character's Fim, name. Fim, Fim. Huh. 
Uh, I can't remember the character's name, but okay. um, not Laser, but the one with the normal name. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> she gets on the back of the motorcycle with Mark Ruffalo, and that ends up being a very important thing that happens. But in the moment, it's just about freedom and movement and uh, just almost like the Nick Cave scene in Harry Potter mm. and the Deathly Hallows, you can just extract it from the movie and find it beautiful. Yeah. Um, it's it, it's all these things, and it's so much more, and so much... It's, it's a small film in that there's no special effects. It's uh, a very down-to-earth story about human relationships, but it's uh, it has more to say than than most of the other movies on my list. Mm-hmm. Now, tell me why you didn't like it. I mean, I know why. Tell the audience why you didn't like it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I hated the movie. I really... <laughs> uh, I give it... Uh, I won't Did go... anything in- that I just say give you food for thought at all? Uh, joie de vivre. Okay. Uh, I agree with that. I'd say that's absolutely there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I d- here's the thing. is like, out of four stars, I'd probably give it two. Uh-huh. Um, which is not the mar- which is not the mark of a terrible film. Right. I don't think it's a terrible film. I think there are terrible things about it, and I know that. And by the way, everyone, I know I'm way in the minority on this one. <laughs> all right, just as you and I hey, are. The bottom of my list has Inception on it. Yeah, not- <laughs> exactly. That's true. Fair enough. Um, yeah, but that's the thing. Imagine how you would feel if my number two movie was Inception. <laughs> right. Okay. So I'm not trying to make any enemies. Uh, I've really been thinking hard about how to address this, <laughs> um, but uh, and I've determined that I'm going to go into more detail in a in blog form uh, because I don't want to take too much time on this. Um, what I would say is that <laughs> I'm trying to find the best way to say it. the film is like Avatar, uh-huh. except instead of special- I'm with you so far. <laughs> what you're saying makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, except instead of special effects, it's got acting. All right. The acting, especially by the three leads, um, I, I mean, support Mark Ruffalo supporting, but you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, that acting is really amazing. All of them. They, they give lived in real performances, and it's really just. I forget. I've forgotten how much I like Mark Ruffalo. Uh, There's a thing he does to go back to that motorcycle scene mm-hmm. when uh, Mia Vashikovska is getting on the bike behind him, and it's just sort of a playful moment. And he does this thing where he turns his head and goes like, <laughs> like he's gonna, like he's pretending to bite her. Yeah, and I'm sure that wasn't in the script. I have and to assume it was ridiculous, and it doesn't make any sense. But it practically made me tear up. It was so like, it was so there was it was so comfortable and 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 cute and. And human, Com- comfortable and human are, are a good way to describe Mark Ruffalo as an actor. He uh-huh. just, as we've said before, he inhabits his characters and just is them. And if something feels right, he'll do it. Mm-hmm. And that I do like him a lot as an actor uh, when given a good role, and it is a good role. Um, I think Annette Bening is really great. I think Julianne Moore is really great. And those are two characters that could have, in the hands of lesser uh, actors could have seemed a little cut and dry. Uh-huh. This is the free spirit who obviously named her son Laser. This is the doctor who is very, uh, you know. Named her daughter something I don't remember. Exactly. <laughs> Not Laser. And, and likes things to be uh, just so. Um, the performances of those three actors, I think, elevated this film. Okay. I'm reluctant to go in this direction. 
but I think it deserves to be said. Okay. The performance of those three actors combined with the fact that it is a film about two lesbians, uh-huh. uh, you know, a, a lesbian-led family, uh, I think caused people to take notice of it, whereas if it were lesser actors or if the family was led by husband and wife, which given the script it very well could be, and you could say that as a strength or a weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, it could uh, depends on what you think. That's fine. But... Um, but I think it got people's attention where I don't think it deserved to. I thought the script was incredibly weak. I thought the directing, except that sequence you're talking about, which is very... There's a few sequences that are very good. There's a moment when... How much should we spoil? Not uh, much, right? Not too much. Okay. But... Uh, Annette Benning has a very startling and very um, impactful <laughs> yeah. revelation. Oh, yeah. I think most people know okay. the revelation. But yeah. right. You never know. But um, that scene, which incidentally has its power because we don't hear what people are saying. Uh, that that scene, and it just tr- and it just stays on Annette Benning's face and lets her do the work, um, that scene was incredibly powerful for me. Um, and that motorcycle sequence is very good, too. Um, that sounded dismissive. It's a very good sequence. <laughs> but, uh, but just by and large, I felt like there are things that could have been explored further. I felt that the kids were... First and foremost, a plot device. I felt like this was a film made by adults, and they only cared about adults. They don't care about the family. They care about the adults. The kids were, I feel like the kids were used right up until the point when, this, when the story turned, and now it's about these three adults, and then they, bring the, then they bring the kids back for emotional effect. Like, there's an argument between the moms. I do like that. I actually like that moment when they, say, when they refer to them as moms, mm-hmm. and I'm like, that seems like an affectation, but I can't think what else they would say. <laughs> yeah. Um, it seemed like a clever thing, but it's like, I guess that's what you would say. <laughs> um, but uh, there's, a, there's a time when they're having a big argument about the, bi- the central conflict of the film. And then, of course, it's revealed that, oh, the kids were listening outside. We haven't really seen the kids up until now, and we don't even see much of their reaction. It only it raises the stakes for the adults. But it's little things like, I'm I'm okay with somebody not being given a motivation, or it not being we're not we're not told the motivation. I'm okay with that. Um, but like it's little things like just treating the kids as an afterthought. Where the thing that gets everything going is Laser is curious about who his father is, and biological yeah biological father and uh, the girl who I can't even say the actress's name. That's how out of Mia. Yeah. Vashikovska. Vashikovska. I'm not going to remember it, um, even when I say it in a moment. But uh, he is curious, and she just turned 18, and um, and so now he she can, you know, inquire as to that. And and she's saying, I don't want to do it, and they have a little bit of an argument. And uh, and then he's like, but you know, he's he's like, just do this because you've never done anything for me before, something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's the line. And then she turn, and then she turns, and then she finds out about it. We don't know what that line means, and we and she doesn't argue against it. Along the same lines, there are several instances in which a conversation, usually an argument, uh, is ended by someone saying "fuck you" and walking away. Several times, once or twice, I'll accept because I'm married. I know that arguments sometimes end like that. Um, but to to go to the well so many times, and then. To go to that well so many times, 
and then act as though you, you have a couple options. One is to not do that. Or two, if these people are saying fuck you to each other this often and then walking away without any, any resolution, that means there's probably a problem with how they are relating to each other and you're not dealing with it as a filmmaker. I think, okay. Are you done? No, my no. Um, I also, I'm talking about the script right now. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, there's little things like... That's, I, get, I, I compare the film to You Can Count on Me in that it's similar in a lot of ways. There's a, there's a parental situation that is not, I won't say normal, but it's not standard uh, when you see movies or, sit, or TV or whatever, which is in that it's a single-parent household, and then in this it's uh, two women, mm-hmm. and then a rogue element played by Mark Ruffalo uh-huh. in both films uh, is introduced, and the interaction of him with the adults and him with the kid... Um, is where the drama comes from. And I feel like You Can Count On Me did it so so much better because it really took its time on the relationship between the kid and his mom, in You Can Count On Me, uh, the kid and his mom, and the kid, and in this case, his uncle, whereas it's little things like, and this is where I think it's a wasted opportunity. And again, you're, I guess you're supposed to review the movie that was made, not the one that you wish was made. Yeah. But if it's a waste, I was gonna make that point. But if it is a wasted opportunity, it's a wasted opportunity. Laser was has been raised by two women and has one older sister. He's never, to my knowledge, had an adult male in his life. Now, regardless of what someone may think about that, that's going to register as, huh? I've never had, and it, and it, they they toy with it a little bit when Mark Ruffalo says your friend's kind of a tool, as we are shown by him wanting to piss on a dog's head. You know, like we all do at that age. It's neither here nor there. I'm sorry. Or you, I think you're just. This is just an experiential thing. If you don't know kids who are like that kid, then we grew up in different places. Because that kid was. I grew up in a lot of different places. I knew people that did, that threw shopping carts off of buildings. All right. That 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 kid, as much as I hated him, rang so true to me. Did he really? He, yeah. He did not ring at all true to me. He seemed like a collection of unpleasant things, so that we felt unpleasantly about him. Um, but if you know if you know people like that, so. But be the it. point isn't to feel unpleasantly about him. The point is to see how Laser reacts, and I I completely disagree with your assertion that the movie forgets about the kids because it keeps returning to them and. Uh, even for you know a moment here or there, because the point is that we're supposed to. I mean, yes, it's a movie made about adults, and adults are the head of the family, and these are still uh, kids. I mean, Mia, whatever is uh, is eighteen at this point, but we return to them occasionally and to situations um, in their their relationships because they're growing up. They're having relationships outside of their families that they're parents can't control and mm-hmm. the point i think is to reflect on uh the way that they act and is that you know it's a nature versus nurture thing are they mm-hmm. reacting this way because they have mark ruffalo's blood or because they were raised by annette benning and julianne moore and 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 i don't think i mean yeah the movie is more about the the adults so i mean Calling Mark Ruffalo's character an adult is a bit of a stretch. <laughs> um, we'll get to that in a second. Um, but I think it it returns to it often enough to keep the kids as part of the theme, and part of the point. And I think maybe that's the here's 
you and I, we don't have any children I, th- together or uh, separately. Or separately. Um, but I guess, I guess some of it has to do with just personal ideas or definitions, and I don't even mean philosophically, but just what we think a kid's role in the family is. Like, to my knowledge, both because of my parents and the parents that I've known, and now, strangely enough, my friends who are parents uh-huh. and my brother and that sort of thing. I mean, the the kid, I probably should say children, um, <laughs> the kid sounds a little dismissive, but uh, children are not something that can, even, even when they're teenagers, like, are the, we, we touch on every once in a while and be like, oh, what are they up to? Yeah, all right. Okay, now back to the adult problems. Like, when you're a parent, you're a freaking parent all the time, and you have your own problems, admittedly. But, like, in my, I guess in my view, like, if it were truly about the family, this would be more of an ensemble. And it isn't. It's very much about this issue. But not all parents work that way. I don't, I don't think the movie is saying that and that Benning and Julian Moore are perfect parents. Mm-hmm. I think it goes out of the way to say that they're not a perfect family. I think that's where the saying fuck you and walking away from, it's sort of like the end of Scott Pilgrim. They're not, just because they hold hands at the end doesn't mean they're better. Mm-hmm. Like, this saying fuck you was part of their part of their problem, and at the end, they're not done working on it. They've got more to do. They've just made the decision on that they're going to do it, and they're going to do it together. And... um as far as the parenting, I wouldn't put it past those kind of, you know, enlightened, uh, liberal parents to take a hands-off approach to their teenagers. And that's the thing is, I guess perhaps that I agree with. Um, in fact, I've agreed with a lot of what you've said. But uh, just because the parents are being hands-off doesn't mean the filmmaker has to be. You know what I mean? But I think this is just a difference of opinion between you and me because I don't think she did. I think that the kids are in the movie because, and I, and I say this because you saw it before I did, and you expressed this reservation about uh, the kids being a device before I even saw it. So I was looking for it, Mm -hmm. and uh, I didn't see it. I I I felt like the kids were uh, returned to, and uh, had you know uh, emotional obstacles of their own. Enough for the movie, but but those those emotional obstacles are not explored nearly as in depth as those of the adults. Well, yeah, but that's again you're just reviewing the movie that you wish you'd seen. The movie is more about the adults. There's a, it's there's made a, by an adult. There's a, absolutely adults and have more agency in the world. Absolutely, that's fine. But at the same time, it's just. I guess it's. I guess what frustrates me is like the 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 story that they uh, certainly the story that they chose to make, but also little things like maybe they're maybe I'm I'm frustrated by the tokenism approach taken with the children, but it's stuff like for example, um, there's a scene where um, uh, Mia Vashikoska, what, what have you, um, and Laser are talking like they've had their they've had their lunch with uh-huh. Mark Ruffalo. I do like that scene actually, because um, the the inherent awkwardness of it is splattered across the <laughs> screen. Um, but uh, so they've had their lunch with them, and then uh, afterwards, Mia says, "I I think I'd like to see him again," and then Laser says, "Oh, 
you want to see him again? Now, admittedly, that reaction might be the fault of the actor and overplaying his distaste for such a thing. A scene or two later, he's hanging out with Mark Ruffalo. We never see how he got there. We never see that, or we don't see how he got there, nor do we see any distaste that he has for being there. I think that you had maybe by that point in the movie already started hating it because that's not oddly enough no not until I didn't start hating re- it like I didn't feel that his rea- I, I thought that his reaction was a lot more conflicted than that when he said you want to see him again but but we and that's the thing is we just have to guess at that I it think might it's be, on it Josh Hutchinson's face I think he does a good job in the role Ugh. I don't think he's bad I think I think he's adequate at best but um and I guess, and, and that's the thing is, I didn't actually start hating it until the main plot conflict came along. Partially because, which, okay, we we all know it. Do you yeah, want me to just say we, it? We okay. Um, so, Julianne Moore, Julianne Moore starts having uh, an affair with Mark Ruffalo. And first off, like, the handling of that and where they choose to inject comedy seems really clunky to me. The way they handle, like, the sex scenes, which are very... Which are very explicit, which doesn't bother me actually, but um, but it's done in an almost comedic way uh, that if this were only Julianne Moore's story would make a a bit of sense. But because we've seen the other characters and we know what a betrayal this is and how they're going, how hurt they're going to be, part of me is like, why are we supposed to be having fun with this when we know how? frustrating it's going to be down the road. I think that, once again, you're not seeing things from this this part of society's worldview. It's not... um, They don't have the... Are you about to sound like a hippie? (laughs) They don't have these hang-ups, man. No, but it is essentially that... um, that um you know infidelity is definitely a transgression mm-hmm. but it's not uh like a mortal sin and in the in in, in if in this culture you mean yeah to to a lot of people mm-hmm. um and i don't think it's a mortal sin either um i'd i'd rather it didn't happen <laughs> i'm 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 a bit put off by it but also um I feel like the once again the joie de vivre of the sex scenes mm-hmm. um, makes it actually is more effective, makes it more heartbreaking because you have to. Julianne Moore wouldn't have uh, had this affair if it were a dour, <laughs> you know, uh, right. event. It's supposed to be fun. Mm-hmm. That's what's tempting about it you know and that benning is so serious and, and and drinks so much it's not she doesn't have fun with her anymore and i guess the i i i, I do see that and that that was the first place my mind went because i and that's the thing is I, I shouldn't compare the film to unfaithful that's a very different type of film but like i feel like that's a film that i mean we've spent time with like diane lane and her husband and so we know that this is a betrayal but we still but the scenes are still very for lack of a better term, sexy, like mm-hmm. in that, and as it should be. That's the allure, just as in this, the allure is it is that it's fun. But somehow, the, I guess I guess maybe the inner conflict that she feels, maybe it has less to do with the scenes themselves as 
what what's wrapped around them. Um, and I, I remember when I first told you one of the problems that I had about the film. Um, although I guess this doesn't lead straight into a sex scene. It's actually leads to after a sex scene. But yeah, but the sort of sma- like ironic smash cut, like we can't do this. Oh, and then they just had sex. Wah, wah. But um, stuff like that is just, it just seems really clunky and just I, I I almost wish that she had committed to complete comedy or complete drama, not because I don't like dramedies, but because I think she doesn't handle the jumps well. I think it's too jarring. I I, I think. That we are each, you and I are each bringing our own opinions on uh, the parent-child relationship mm-hmm. and on sexual morality to this movie, and that's what's coloring our mm-hmm. our different interpretations of it. Okay, fair enough. So, what is your number two or number one movie? Oh, that's right. We're, oh, we're ending with your number one. That's right. Yes. Oh so here gosh. we go. How long do we talk about that? Sorry, Drum everybody. Drum roll. Uh, <laughs> I revealed it a few weeks ago. I believe I brought it up episode 200 with Never Not Funny's Jimmy Pardo and Matt Belknap. And then again, a couple weeks ago with comedy film nerds. Chris Mancini and Graham Elwood. Indeed. Uh, it is Black Swan. This would be Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan. Black Swan. And as listeners know, you and I, I, I enjoyed The Wrestler, too, but I enjoyed it almost in spite of him. Although I did, li- I I did like some. Yeah, of- in spite of Darren Aronofsky. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I I agree with that. Right. I mean, I don't think the wrestler is great. I think it's a pretty good movie. Right. With a great perf- lead performance. And and some very virtuoso sequences when it came comes to the wrestling and all that. But it's it's all the sequences uh, in between where you and I discuss like a possible condescension. Yeah. Uh, in the way he uh, approaches the characters. And not enough Todd Berry. Can't that be said of any film? That's my chief complaint about the kids are all right. <laughs> yeah. Although, oddly it, it, enough. It's, I'm telling you, Inception would not be at the bottom of my list <laughs> if Todd Perry were in it more. And incidentally, you were in that's, it a lot, why, I mean. that's why I love Black Swan. <laughs> oh, a lot of Todd Perry. Huh? They don't play him up in the trailers, <laughs> but I got to tell you, he's everywhere. Um, but no, it's... Uh, so can yeah, he dance? I, can he? Uh but the um yeah I, I know okay so there's not a lot of love lost uh between me and Darren Aronofsky he doesn't like me either <laughs> but uh and I went into this movie just being like this is going to be Aronofsky bullshit I don't want to watch this I have to because of the Oscars and whatever and the film totally won me over and it is very it is very uh, Polanski-like uh, in a lot of ways, um, in this in the sense of like uh, the tenant and just feeling like things are s- uh, slowly, methodically uh, closing in on you, mm-hmm. and it creates a really good sense of there's a sense of psychological horror there, and and of course the dancing sequence from a from a craftsmanship standpoint, of course. The cinematography, the editing, and the directing of like the dance dancing sequences are amazing. The possibly fantasy sequences, uh, where you don't really know what's reality and what isn't, those are handled really well. Um, and I think the performances are great all throughout. Uh, I I am actually perfectly fine with. Uh, is it Mila or Mila? Mila, Kunis. I think it's Mila. Okay, uh, her, her performance is her performance is fine. I'm actually kind of happy she wasn't nominated for an Oscar like 
I feel like her being nominated would have just been like, hey, she's uh, she was in it too, and uh, we're we like this movie, right? Now, um, I'm gonna again pull a Tyler and talk about a movie I haven't seen. Go ahead, but. Um, it seems to me that the most divisive or divisive performance okay. in the movie is uh, the French guy, Vincent Cassell. Is that his yes. name? Frenchy. That's what I like to call him. <laughs> and uh, I mean, he's an actor that I have liked and stuff and disliked and stuff. Mm-hmm. Did you like his performance? Uh, I did. Okay. I think uh, I think people's problems with him. I, I have no idea. I'm completely speculating. I didn't know that anybody was critiquing him. Oh, okay. So I just learned of this, and now I'm going to speculate on people's motivation for it. Um, I think I th- the the main complaint I've heard is sort of like mustache twirling type of... like, Which is odd. I actually don't get that at all. Okay. Um, it's, I, I could be misunderstanding what people are saying, okay. seeing as I haven't seen the movie. <laughs> he is given the clunkiest dialogue. That I'll say. I'll, I'll say that. And his, he's given the most on-the-nose dialogue. And so I could see people maybe attributing that to like the performance or something, being like, eh, it was a little too a little too on the nose." You could see, you could think that about the character because of how he expresses himself. But no, I think he actually he is kind of he's predatory at times, but he has a clear artistic vision, and I think he doesn't he doesn't play him as pure evil. He plays him as a guy who knows what he wants, whether it be this girl or this amazing uh, ballet and he just plays him as a guy who's very single-minded um, and sometimes that rides roughshod over people's emotions uh, but he doesn't ma- he doesn't care he's going to get what he wants and that he's selfish he's undoubtedly a selfish character but uh, I would not say he is a mustache twirling snidely whiplash type okay um, He's very. I mean, people have made comparisons to the Red Shoes, and rightfully so. And he's he's like Anton Walbrook. I mean, it's very the character is the same, and I'd say the way he plays the character is very similar as well. That's high um, praise. What was yeah, that? That's high praise. I think Anton Walbrook is very, great in the Red Shoes. Yeah, and I think I think uh, Vincent Cassell is very good. I like him as an actor quite a bit, um, even in films like Ocean's Twelve that I hated. I didn't see that, but uh, I liked him in Elizabeth. And I haven't seen Elizabeth since I saw it in the theater, oh. so I don't remember him in it. Well, he's good. But I liked him in uh, Eastern Promises. Sure. Yeah. But uh, but what I like about the film, and, and I think Natalie Portman, I don't know why people give her crap. They're like, oh, she doesn't do a good job. Are you kidding me? Like, f- fear and, not even fear, terror, which is what she's feeling, is one of the hardest emotions to play. It seems effortless okay. when done well. And her con- her mixture of confusion with what's happening in her life and the terror of what's happening and while also playing a character who has trained herself to hold everything in emotionally uh, like she's playing a lot of levels there and I, she plays them all perfectly like I always get I get a very strong sense of who her character is and I get a strong sense of her arc I should say I'm not a fan of Natalie Portman I know you're not and um, I don't think I'm a huge fan either um, I think I had to admit that I, to myself that I wasn't a fan because she seems like she's probably really cool. Like she I seems see smart, that. and she uh, makes good choices. And she was a guest judge on Top Chef a season or two ago, and okay. I, I watched it just because just for her. Did she get drunk? I think a little bit, but that's what they do. They, oh, you okay. know, uh, and um, she was just very charming on that. And so I want to like her, but I don't actually like her in any movies. And you're not a you're not a fan of Closer. Did you like her in Closer? I know no. you don't like the film. I don't. Okay. Um, 
I I think I also respect her willingness as an actress to and this is in closer as well, put herself out there emotionally without doing it artificially. Like uh like really playing like over like playing to playing the emotion too much to show you how raw she's being. Like she'll do it to the to the extent that the character will allow her to. And uh, and I, I like that a great deal. But the thing that got me the most is, I mean, we talked about it with um, Exit Through the Gift Shop, is exploring the artist's relationship to, in that film, of course, various things, but uh, uh, the artist's relationship to his or her art mm-hmm. and the feeling of... of Dealing, uh, tapping into something bigger than yourself, making it your own, and that's and and from an acting standpoint, like it, it, like she's she's, of course she's a dancer, but she's also playing this role, or rather her her character is playing these two roles, mm-hmm. and and that's the thing is actors say like, well, you got to bring, you can bring a lot of yourself to the role, but this character ne- realizes that she needs to bring the role to herself first. And in doing so, kind of ruins her life a little bit, and um, and it's just about like, as I don't know, it's it's almost like this little treatise on how, if you're an artist, like how much you need to be willing to commit to, to following your art where it goes, because after a while it's leading you. I know that sounds really pretentious, but like if you're a writer and let's say you're writing what a character is doing, after a certain point, if you've crafted a, a good enough character, a strong enough character. He will, he or she will tell you where they're going. You don't tell them, right. and that's the thing. Is just the the big thing that the that the film returns to uh, probably too much is letting go. Let go. You just need to let go, and and in this case, this woman is so stifled, uh, but on her own, she does it to herself. Probably as a function of some things that her mom has told her, but like, and one of the big things as I'm sure we've all heard about is uh sexuality that she is probably a virgin. She is uncomfortable with the idea of sex. She's uncomfortable with the idea of masturbation and all these things. And so as she is slowly, but surely w- letting go, she ex- experiments with things and, and, and I, I found those scenes to be very raw and, even a little, not scary, I wasn't frightened by them, but I understand why she is frightened of them. And at, at all... So, I mean, I the trailer did kind of give the impression that there were horrific elements to the movie. There are. Oh, absolutely. There are Cronenbergian uh, aspects to the film. Um, but, uh, and that's the thing, is all of that is to put you in her mindset as she is, in her own mind, earning her art earning in this case earning her role um but also just just letting go completely and it's a film that you you've brought up the word a couple of times it's audacious and i appreciate that kind of audacity it's an audacity of it it feels finally like darren aronofsky let go it's mm-hmm. a, it's like the film itself is the story of him making the film of him finally being like i'm not going to i'm not going to keep putting layering things on top of this I'm just going to let the film tell me where it's going to go. And I feel like that's a very ballsy approach. But I, I also know that some people 
possibly yourself. I really don't know how you'll react to it. Some people might really hate it, but I actually appreciate that level of just letting the art dictate where it's going to go. Uh, so I really, I really love the movie, it, and and I went in expecting to hate it. Okay. Well, David, what's your number one? That's what I want to know. Drum roll, please. Don't really. I'm not. It going to. is Toy Story three. Toy Story three. I was going to say Lee Unkrich's Toy Story three because I'm trying to say the director's name. Oh, okay. But um, is he the sole? Sole credited director? Yes. Okay. Lee Unkrich's and Pixar's Toy Story 3. I like to think it belongs to all of us, David. <laughs> um, I'm as surprised as you, the listener, are that this is my favorite film of the year. And I say that assuming the listener has certain preconceived ideas about me and who I am. <laughs> um, but, I mean, in the in the, in the past, um, I think Ratatouille was your, Tyler, favorite film of 2007. Yep. And uh, Up was your second favorite film of 2009. Third, and then Wally was, I think, number two, three, or four of two thousand eight. Yes. Okay. Um, so you you should be the one who has Toy Story three at least in your top ten. Where is it? Two. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I forgot. I forgot that we just. I was. I, I. I thought I hadn't heard you say it, but we just said it. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's right. But you should be uh, of the two of us. You should be the one that has Toy Story three as your number one. Based on your history with Pixar, whereas mm. those three movies you named, Ratatouille, Wally, and Up, you hate I them. have no. I mostly liked them, mm-hmm. um, but I have different problems with all of them. I don't think either. I don't think any one of those three was in my top ten uh, of of those years. Um, and uh, also, I tend to uh, be a guy who always prefers the first movie. Um, you know, I. Uh, I, I scoff at people who say Godfather 2 is better than the first one. As you should. And I have always, and I will continue to scoff at people who say that Toy Story 2 is better than the first one. Um, I will admit that Empire Strikes Back is better than A New Hope. What's your favorite of the Bourne films? Oh, man. That's tough to say. Yeah. That is really tough to say. Yeah. It might actually be... No. That's impossible to say. Okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to. I can't do it. <laughs> you um, can't, or you won't. I mean, I mean, some of my favorite scenes are in Ultimatum. Mm-hmm. Um, the scene where he goes to tell the brother of uh, yeah, I can't remember her name, Franco Potente, mm-hmm. to talk to her, and then of course the scene at the end. You know, look what they make us do. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, um, but uh, the, the, uh, anyway, you're giving me off off track here. Sorry, uh, <laughs> but. I'm going to go ahead and say that I like Toy Story 3 better than Toy Story and Toy Story 2. I would agree. Um, this is, uh, it's almost, it's funny that uh, Pixar, and it's respectable that they dragged their feet on making a third one because they thought they had told the stories they needed to tell. And now, and, and the reason I'm glad they dragged their feet until they had the right story, and the reason I'm glad they made the right story is because now I can't even imagine those two films existing without this one. Yeah. This is what needed to be said. This is where the story needed to go, where it needed to end. And yeah, I hope there's not a fourth one. I don't I I don't think that I don't think it's possible for there to be a fourth one. Like it, if it, you're it, I mean, if you're asking the head of Disney, then he's saying, yeah, it's possible. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> yes. I'm pretty sure this movie made some money. <laughs> Toy Story 3. He did all right. I don't have the the uh the number's in front of me, but I think it did okay. It made at least $20 million. <laughs> That's a lot of money. 
That's more money I'll ever have in one place. Um, <coughs> uh, Enjoy that phrase. <laughs> but, okay, so, it, yeah, it... You know, we um, a movie that is nominated for Best Picture that we haven't talked about once so far is True Grit. And, right, yeah. Um, and I think that's a movie that is very much explores purpose and duty. Mm-hmm. You know? And... Um, it it does it in the standard Cohen sort of cold and detached and kind of funny way. Yeah. Uh, Toy Story, all the Toy Story movies are about purpose and duty. Mm-hmm. Um, purpose specifically, you know, why am I here? Yeah. Um, what purpose do I serve? And what honor is there in serving that purpose? Right? Would you agree that that's yeah, I'd a say big that's theme? About right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this is a much more engaged, not detached, uh, story, a trilogy, and uh, and what Toy Story three does better than Toy Story, or expands it more than Toy Story two did, is it explores the end of that purpose. That mm-hmm. the you know once you've served your purpose and done what you were supposed to do, what use are you, yeah. and who are you really? It's I mean, uh, are you are you worth anything? Um, and it's not just a sad... I'm not just talking about, like, Woody doesn't spend the movie sort of, like, kicking the floor and saying, gee, shucks, I'm not worth anything, and then he has to find a new purpose. Like, the movie is really about, is it time for us to die now because we've done what we were here to do? Right. Uh, and, it, it, you know, it... You know, I said the kids are all right, explorers family better than any movie on this list or any movie I can think of. Toy Story 3 explores, explores mortality and the end of it better than any movie on this list or pretty much any movie I can think of. Yeah. Uh, which is still, I know that we're supposed to be enlightened and not think of animated movies as kids' movies, but Toy Story 3 is, uh, to a certain extent, aimed, at least marketed at kids. And it's still astounding to me that um, the, this is a movie about death. Right. Uh, about About, you know looking death in the eye. Yeah. Uh, and it's a Toy Story movie. I don't know. I've been talking long enough. What, no, it was your number two. What do you have to say about it? <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah, I uh, I like a lot of the uh, a lot of the things that the, the film explores. Um, and like the other ones, it, uh, it explores uh, duty and purpose. And of course, in this one, they expand that, and I recorded an episode of More Than One Lesson about this movie, and I... Yeah, I was going to say that that, uh, that that exists, and um, yeah. people can listen to that. You yeah, don't yeah. have to go through it all again here. Right, and and I'm not planning on it. It is a very it, so. good episode. Thank you very much. Lesson. I appreciate that. Um, but, uh, but I think one of the things that the film explores, it expands the idea of duty and purpose to the idea of... Faith, and of course, in more than one lesson, I relate it to the Christian faith and, and all that. Um, I don't know why I'm being so dismissive about that. Uh, it's a <laughs> thing I did, and I believe it. But um, but in this film, it's like it questions: What do you? Why do you feel this sense of duty? And what is it exactly that you feel obligated to? And what like 
should you? Should you feel that? Like, or should you just fend for yourself and merely saying it's all going to turn out fine? There's absolutely a purpose to my life. Uh, there, this duty that I'm performing is a necessary one and a noble one. Well, why? Why? You know, how can you prove that? Like, you're just literally taking it on faith. You're just assume that's the case and act as if it were true. And to me, the, the, the conflict between Woody and his absolute faith, even almost to the point of a, a blind, desperate faith, um, and then the character of Lotso, who's the, the spoilers, the villain, um, and just his... But he's not merely a villain. Like he he doesn't just want to keep things a certain way. I mean, he he's he is a deeply wounded character who has taken those wounds and turned them into a type of philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, and ref- and is I would venture to say intolerant of somebody saying that's not true. And so it's very so I would say that and he doesn't believe that toys should have owners. He doesn't believe that owners are good at all. And so, of course, you get that, that level of, um, I would say skepticism, but that's not a powerful enough word. Um, uh, nihilism? Not, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Just, a, just a complete lack of trust in that, in the whole owner system. Um, you get that. Yeah, that was way more powerful. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> You get that compared with Woody's faith, and it's really just... And so the film, along with being, by the way, just action-packed, suspenseful, funny, and just a pleasure to watch and experience, along with that, you actually get a clash of ideas more than anything else. And that, to me, is fascinating, Uh, both as a movie person and also personally as a Christian. Just these ideas are things that... I mean, those are very adult concepts on both sides and something that you know we argue constantly and and just the fact that like you said that the film was willing to explore that that the the filmmakers were willing to explore that in what is ostensibly a kids movie without ever making it seem like they're injecting something solely for adults you know what i mean like I think kids can still watch and enjoy the film. They may not be able to understand it on every level, but as you and I have said before, I think kids are smarter than we take them for and are more observant. And and it's probably never too you're probably never too young, maybe a little too young, but you these are these are ideas that you may even have as a kid. Mm-hmm. And that you're definitely going to have as an adult. And so it's never too soon to start thinking about them even if it's even if in regards to a toy cowboy and a stuffed pink bear. So, yeah, I just, I, I thought the film was amazing. Well, that was, that, that those were our top 10 lists, our top 10 movies of 2010. We'll probably post them just a list on the, on yeah, the blog. Yeah. Um, uh, man, that was a marathon. Long, so, uh, longest episode. I'm almost positive. I'm pretty sure you're right. Um, Live show, March 5th, Meltdown Comics, five bucks, free beer, Sean Cullen, James Adomian, Michelle Balloon, Jim Bruce. You can email us, David at Battleship Potential.com, Tyler at Battleship Potential.com. Uh, that's it. That's all you need to know. 
Oh, really? Yeah. This is where we run out of steam. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for uh, for listening, and we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.